Hello, and welcome back to Rewinding Revit. I'm your host, Noah Blanchard, and I'm still here pondering that age-old question, why do I love the work of NWR so much? For this episode, we'll be rewinding back to the pre-pandemic days of 2019 to explore Revit's streaming opus, Too Old to Die Young. A decidedly for fans only outing that tested the commitment of even his most ardent admirers, with its glacial pace, pitch black tone, and nearly 13 hour plus runtime. It also didn't help that the show's home, Amazon, all but buried it and has essentially disowned it at this point. A fate that I hope doesn't befall Copenhagen Cowboy, which we discussed on the previous episode, which, side note, has a new companion doc called Night Call, which just released last week on Netflix and YouTube. It's a brief but super fun behind-the-scenes look at the production, and I highly recommend it for anyone who enjoyed the series or may be looking for a bit more context. Uh, It's also a very illuminating look at NWR's current approach to casting and how he collaborates in real time to shape the characters and the narrative. Now back to the main event, where you're about to hear two discussions of Too Old to Die Young. The first, and slightly more contentious one, is with my brother and fellow RQV podcast co-host, Mr. Gavin Blanchard. The second is with one half of the Bending Not Breaking crew, Mr. Sunshine Mayfield, who joined me for a crossover pod about a week later. They're an interesting snapshot of our early reactions to the show, which I think will be interesting to revisit as I head into my very extended rewatch throughout 2023. More on that on a future episode. For now, enjoy these excerpts from the former TV art feed, and uh, I'll check in with you on the back half and let you know who will be guesting with us on future episodes. Stay tuned. Television is amazing right now. With that in mind, let's talk about something that is decidedly not television and not a movie. Uh, Tool to Die Young. The new Amazon Prime. We can still call it a series. It's a Prime series. Yeah. But from everything that I understand, it is a standalone. It's these 13 hours, that's it. I don't think we're getting a season two. I would totally be down for it if we did but i don't think that that is any anywhere near happening ever so call it a limited series call it a 13 hour movie i call it my my single favorite thing i've seen this year flat out yeah uh personally so we'll we'll get to the show itself talk to me a little bit about your relationship to refin before coming into this Obviously, I know you like Drive. Um, <laughs> well, I really didn't know him. I met him on a dating site, and he just seemed really nice. But then he told me he was colorblind, and I was like, <laughs> okay, man. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, I mean, I Drive was good. I watched Only God Forgives, um, and I thought, okay, this is going to be a new directing duo. You know, like a Scorsese, De Niro, Scorsese... Uh, DiCaprio kind of thing because here's this guy's been in Drive now this and then we get to the Neon Demon and um I really didn't understand it the first time around and and then I I kind of listened to what he talked about it and and going into it again the second time is like oh he just thinks that models are like the modeling industry is just full of like evil and when Jenna Malone asks are you sex or are you food like it makes complete sense now but 
not knowing it, not going into it, I'm just kind of like, oh, okay. But, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. This I'm kind of back and forth on because I f- I'm trying to, I'm not trying to figure out what it's about. I'm trying to figure out what it's trying to tell me because I don't necessarily think it's about anything. I think it's just about, it just shows you this thing. And it's like, a, it's not about something. It's like a commentary on something, if that makes any sense. How is that not about something if it's commentating on something? Because I don't think it's telling me, it's not trying to, like, it's not a reaction to something. It's just like a way he sees it. You see what I'm saying? It's not like he's about this, like, oh, I'm about this or that. I'm about, you know, the pro-right or the pro-left or, like, the death of society and this. It's just the commentary of what he sees in the world and a way that he relates to it through his lens in which how he sees his world. Like, themes that he is in tune with in the world and, like, visually how he processes the way he feels about them in this narrative. Like, I think he doesn't give a shit about the the systems we've created for our society when it comes to law and order. Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely think, I feel like he thinks, you know, police are a joke. Yeah. More than, I mean, there's other instances besides this show, but I feel like that. I feel like he does, the whole speech about, like, society being dead and it's going to die off and we're going to become this thing like when they're kind of looking at the night him talking to um okay you're literally just diving into the series we've provided no context whatsoever yeah yeah for anybody but, that but still no but that, i'm just saying that's what i just that's an example but i just feel like this is him basically saying society as we know now for whatever reason it's kind of fucked and it's done with and here's how i interpret that Does that make sense no okay not, i yeah i i get some of what you're saying okay. i just don't i don't know man okay well tell me because maybe i'm maybe i'm not looking at it the right way maybe i should be in a, i mean this is what i got watching it the first time trying to like make sense of it all and again where we come from two different view like well this is why i was trying to ask you about how you relate to him as a filmmaker, what you think about him before you sat down to watch this. Oh, I thought it was... That's why I was not going into the show at all yet. Okay. Okay, so as far as that concerns... What what have you seen of his? What do you like? What do you struggle with? What is your level of interest and or fandom? Okay. Let's start there. What movie should I have seen from him besides Drive, Neon Demon? Arguably, you should have seen... Anything that interested you, like obviously you weren't compelled to go watch everything he's ever done. Which, which is what by what you've seen, he started with the Pusher trilogy. Okay, okay, starring Mads Mikkelsen, at least for the first two. Okay, um, well now I gotta watch those. I didn't know he made them. I'm you. I did not hear the words Bronson come out of your mouth once. Have you not seen Bronson? I have. I forget that that's him. Okay, then you have Valhalla Rising. Yeah. Also with Mads Mikkelsen. Okay. This is building up to Drive, which is like the breakthrough hit and everything. In addition to the Pusher trilogy, he had Bleeder, which I still have never seen. It's kind of like the Lost movie or whatever, from what I understand. And then there's Fear X, which was like his first American debut with John Turturro, which apparently was like recut, taken away from him, et cetera, et cetera. It's one of those scenarios. Yeah. So 
drive is kind of that's why I was trying to figure out your relationship like your I'm assuming that's where you came into him at like discovered him and then were or were not interested in checking out other stuff and you talked a little bit about Only God Forgives Has is that one you've only seen once twice okay what do you make of that because I feel like that is that and Neon Demon are the keys to your level of enjoyment of Too Old to Die Young I don't you could speak freely. I'm trying to th- no. I'm trying to think of how I feel about because I mean I've watched both of those. Old, well, I most recently seen the Demon, but I watched Only God Forgives twice, but it was a long time ago. I mean, visually from both of them, they're stunning. Everything he's made to me is fucking beautiful. Right. Stunning. You temper that with an amazing synth-based score, with some elements of like other traditional what you consider like music. Not not nothing based from a synthesizer, but the the way that the way that characters are in every one of these movies, there's just some kind of like there's some kind of like underlying thing in each one of them that I'm like I I they they feel natural but completely unnatural at the same time, mm-hmm. like. Whether it's the hero in drive, the driver in drive, or Gosling in I don't know the names and and only God forgives or Julian Ju- matters, Julian yeah. yeah and then even the two can I can I say witches is that okay like witches in in a neon demon you can say that if that's what you think they are I mean yeah I totally think they are okay like they're new age witches but like okay. even the witches and the little girl in and the new the new the new sensation even Desmond what's his face what's his last name from uh, Dexter. Desmond something? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, even I him as the photographer, like barely, again, he barely says anything in that movie. I just feel like he's one of these people that there's so much... Harrington. Harrington, yeah. So there's so much given to people just by like the mise sin alone and where he chooses to put a camera on that I think he's probably one of those people that's like, I don't need a fuck ton of dialogue to get my point across. You know? Right. And going into that, I was like, that's great. But then there are some, there's like all this dialogue and stuff in this that I'm not, I'm just not used to. I'm sure pound for pound total minutes, it's about the same as a regular one of his movies. You stretch it out over 13 hours, there's enough dialogue in that 13 hours to be the same amount of dialogue that's in Drive, only got and only got well driving neon demon there's like almost no dialogue to me i feel like and only god forgives at least from the main character's point of view there is hardly any dialogue yeah um it gives you literally just enough to like move the plot forward um but then tells most of it visually and you're just like you're either on its wavelength or you're not it's also one of those movies that uh is is an hour and a half that can also feel like it's like two and a half oh hours yeah definitely long. yeah no um but if you've seen it a handful of times what you start to realize is it really moves like it's a it's a well-paced movie mm-hmm. but it has a dream kind of fever dream like quality to it um i feel like you feel start to feel the length a lot more in neon demon which is if i'm not mistaken his longest movie prior to this 13 hour yeah, endeavor I think so. um 
I can I see like where he's feel, leading to this. feel the length. That. That's what I'm saying. I feel like you need the building blocks of only God forgives kind of worldview and outlook on existing within a palette of essentially um, corruption, irredeemable characters though. Yes. The idea of, I have nothing to grasp onto or seemingly nothing to grasp onto in terms of a traditional protagonist that I can get behind. I feel like that is essential when you get to two old style. No, definitely. Okay. And also blending again, the, kind of neon drenched aesthetic that you associate with drive and only God forgives. And oddly enough, neon demon is where you really start to see him expand a little bit with these desert landscapes, which you're going to see a lot more of in too old to die young. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, expanding a little more beyond interiors and like set decoration, everything. Um, so all, all things I think are worth charting as we move into the series. Here's, I've been waiting to do this. Hey, brother, why don't you give us plot time for Too Old to Die Young? Just give us a, give us the briefest of outlines. Okay. What, what is the plot of Too Old to Die Young? You have 30 seconds. A young heir to a Mexican cartel mows down a black cop. You find out that his white partner, who's also in bed with the black cop, decides, okay, I got to try and track this down. And eventually uh, he gets involved with a, a lady who works for Victims Advocacy, who basically just tells an ex-FBI agent where to go kill pedophiles. And they all kind of meet up and kind of almost intervene for a little bit. But then again, all of his bad decisions come back to haunt him. And we're left with the high priestess of death essentially coming to fruition and murdering everyone. Good <sighs> I think that's probably your best best ever you said only had 30 seconds no yeah you killed it okay uh yeah so ostensibly i should have watched two this is an an la crime story oh god with a lot of elements of noir so is this the real la takedown is this what you're saying too old to die young is a real life la I i thought about literally just subbing this in for the la takedown episode yeah seriously but it we could work that. i might tack it on it might be a double release of that and this on the movie arc and then bending not breaking and this on the tv arc we'll see okay so we have what you would naturally assume is your lead character your protagonist miles teller playing martin jones a very very young almost babyish looking police officer yeah okay we're introduced to him, you know, extremely like dipping your toe into a bath sort of scenario of an episode of, yeah. the, of in terms of pace. Notably, at Cannes and to most critics, he released episodes four and five specifically. So in the midst of this 13-hour series, he dropped them dead in the center of it little to no context and that that was what was presented for reviews and that was what was screened at can he basically edited those two episodes together and a little bit of stuff on either side and delivered like a two hour and 20 minute movie i'd be interested to see what he actually showed yeah no there. that'd be dope but so yeah having seen the series keep that in mind what he chose to show people were four and then five which is arguably the best 
standalone episode, but also the roughest and one of the most intense of the entire 13 hours. What's five? Is he going to New Mexico? Five is going to New Mexico. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I'm just we'll trying to get the, my bearings because yes. I should have watched two. I honestly... We'll, we'll get to an area where you and I can have spoilers. And again, yeah. this is not going to be the most in-depth discussion. This will be multi-parts. Mayfield's coming in at some point. You and I can touch on this more because I am also if I find anybody who's watched it, it, I'll talk et cetera, to them too. Et cetera. Yeah, I want to keep it a little vague initially because I'm hoping more people will be inspired to check it out and then maybe we can have a little bit of a, a fan discussion because there's mm-hmm. not that much out there about it right now. And then we can hit him up and, and see if he'll talk to us about it. Sure. He did an exclusive... I, the only interview I think that he has given podcast-wise was for Joe Blow. Um, and like notably has not been on the normal... like circuit that NPR people do circuit and like other stuff you which i do i do like that, yeah. that it is hashtag nwr which is a whole other thing that i can explain to you later he basically has his own free streaming service of stuff that's curated by him that you can all you have to do is sign up for it and then you just have it i know that's I, I i i looked into that um, i think that's fucking amazing yeah he yeah okay so basic plot outline we have a cop who were introduced to the idea very early that he's he's dirty or at least a little dirty mm-hmm. or doesn't you know just kind of turns his eyes the other way when some shit's about to go down anyways he's part of also this criminal underworld where apparently he and his partner uh have been doing hits for a local gangster that partner is killed very early on this is within like the first 15 to 20 minutes of the episode and we hear that it's about this this prior incident that went down. So we're already questioning, like, okay, what's the deal with Miles Teller character, blah, blah, blah. But he seems like the better of the two of these guys, mm-hmm. for sure. Because his partner, from the get-go, I mean, the opening they monologue put- of this series is literally about... I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to kill her. I'm gonna have to kill my mistress because she's about to ruin my my marriage. Yeah, that is the jumping off point. And I think that's very key for if you're looking for themes and what the show is ultimately gonna be about. Um, it's all kind of encapsulated right here in this first scene. And Martin's response to it, Miles Teller's response, I think is very key as well. We can get into all of those details later. He's killed. This sets off a chain of events where trying to investigate the murder of his partner which he's kind of indifferent towards um in parallel we see the murderer jesus and what's going on with him he retreats back down to mexico Mm -hmm. and his narrative is getting built up but for the most part we're sticking with miles teller okay by the end of the first episode how you feeling about this guy Around the time that uh, he's just, you know, cruising by high school. <laughs> listen. Revealed listen, within no, the listen, first hour and a half no, of just, this series. Listen, Go ahead, Captain. I've talked to you before about how I think the weekend can make you love strippers <laughs> and hate them all in the same time. This man, this writer-director, Nicholas... In our, what is it? NWR. NWR, which is kind of neat. Um, simultaneously can make you root for someone and want them to like succeed and be and do their thing 
but also make you want to rip every piece of your skin off to get away from what you're watching. <laughs> there are no good men in this world and that I he think, creates. I think that's what it firmly establishes within the first episode. With the exception is... of John Hawks. I don't have any problems with him whatsoever. Yes. We'll, we could talk about Hawks in a second. But it is introduced within the first hour and a half of this 13-hour endeavor that Miles Teller, who you're again assuming is your, your hero cop, if you will, has has been dating a 17-year-old since the time she was 16, who he met in the wake of her mother's possible suicide, question mark, uh, but on the scene of the accident that led mm-hmm. to her mother's untimely death. Okay, In the wake of that, he started dating a 16-year-old. He is 30 in the context of this show. Uh, also, by the end of the first episode, we're introduced the idea that, like, hey, he's kind of being fast-tracked. There's to become a detective. For, yeah, it's like, if you saw these promos and you were like, Miles Teller is a fucking detective? Like, what? The show is acknowledging that, like, no, he's he's young, he's baby-faced, but he's basically fast-tracked by the, the chief to, uh, to the detective slot. Okay? So we have that going forward. You then take a giant detour. A big down, drive down south. Yes. Down to Mexico for an hour and a half. Okay? You get Jesus. You get what's going on with the cartel, his family, and the introduction of, uh, spoiler alert, or, hey, pay attention to this alert, uh, if you're starting the series from this point forward, we're introduced to Yuritsa, who Yuritsa. is, uh, I think... The most important character in the entire show. Of course. And the best performance in the entire show. Hands and I think down. Christina Rodlow is a, a just a fucking star now. Um, I don't... I, I have not seen her in anything else, but I have seen her filmography and definitely, like, she's been... She's been blown up just in the last couple years, and I want to catch up with some of this stuff. She absolutely blew me away. I think all of the performances in this series... Are incredibly dialed in to what this show is. Yeah. I think everybody is 100% on board for it. Uh, she is doing something even beyond that, which is just like she's magnetic to watch on screen. It is amazing. And she has a, a what I think is great character to back it up. Oh, okay? yeah. So we're introduced to all that. And then we go back over to, you know, north of the border and we get. Martin Jones uh, kind of beginning to try and find a, a new path forward from what he's been essentially trapped in. Yeah. Um, yeah. So without going beat by beat for all the plot elements and everything, because I don't want to spoil everything, what's kind of your journey with the show? How did you feel about the pace? How did you feel like we can talk about favorite characters? We can talk about where it goes overall. Um, did you find it? Uh, a chore to get through did you devour it fairly quickly etc and we will basically say from this point forward uh some spoilers might crop up i mentioned it earlier in the episode this is a 10 out of 10 for me this is my favorite thing i've seen this year i i think it contains multitudes and so much that we can talk about that's why we will continue to chat about it here on the tv arc and probably on the movie arc as well so uh if you have dived in Hit us up, thearchivy at gmail.com. 
Let us know what you're thinking like as you're working your way through it. If you've already finished it, let us know your overall take, if you thought it was worth your time, etc., etc. Uh, and if you're just kind of on the fence or curious, you know, follow along as we talk more about it. Yeah. But uh, thearchivee at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Instagram at thearchivee network, on Twitter at thearchivee. Uh, we're also on Facebook, which Gavin handles. Uh, it's just search the Archivee Network, and uh, I think that's all the usual places. Uh, if you if you enjoy this and the other stuff that we do, you can go to our Patreon. It's Patreon.com/backslash/TheArchivee, and you can donate for as little as a dollar a month. That gets you access to our ad-free archives. That's uh, Carpenter Revisited, the show that started things here on the network. That is the only place you can hear Carpenter Revisited also got a couple other exclusive bonus episodes and cool things going on over there so uh check that out and uh now we'll move back into too old to die young so oh take take me take me through it how quickly did you watch it oh, it took me like three days it's because three days it, total okay well it's because every over. episode is an hour and 35 minutes or an hour and 37 minutes and 22 seconds like it's there's no i can carve out an hour for anything at night but I would get through stuff and then an episode would end and I hop into the next one because Amazon is, oh, you're still doing this. Um, it's not as pretentious yes, as Notably, Netflix. the first night I watched the first episode because, okay, it was supposed to come out on a Friday and then it was just all of a sudden up. Like, I figured it would be a midnight or 3 a.m. thing. Mm-hmm. And I just went and looked and it was like, it, it's already on here. And I was like, how long has this been up? Like, how long could I have been watching this prior? So, we throw on the first episode. Veronica watches like the first 35, 40 minutes with me. And she taps out because she's got to go to bed. I finish it. And I'm like totally invested. I start episode two. Episode two is all in Spanish. Mm hmm. You can't stay and awake for that. It, it, I, and I'm engaged. I am in a very trance like state, which the show continually puts you in if you are vibing with it and you're invested. The, the pace, I feel like, works much in the same way that the only parallel to the show, Twin Peaks The Return, uh, works, which is, if, it, if it's slow, it's slow, it, you know, seemingly, it may be for no purpose or effort, but it's, it's all about the mood, and it's about, A, him being in 100% control. If he's slowing things down or pacing it out this way, it's because he's setting you up. Come... He's setting you up for something a few beats from now, and or he's setting you up for the delay of that payoff. Like you and you find the rhythms of it as you stick with the show. Okay. Anyways, I so I fade out probably like 45, 50 minutes into episode two, and then it played like through episode six or so i wake up at like you know 5 30 in the morning and i'm like oh shit what's going on yes yeah, stop that, it immediately and i'm like okay, and that explains how far am I gone? that yeah. explains why when i started it that night i started with two and i thought oh bold move man i haven't even seen miles jumped, teller it jumped you back into like where, where I you fell off at, at. Yeah. yeah but but it had shown me where you had killed all of them i was like oh damn he's way ahead of me like when i first yeah, looked at it friday morning i was like Oh damn! He watched all of them last night. He must not have had a work later, nothing or this morning. The one big thing I do want to say up front also is, if you if you do decide to watch it in order, which I recommend that you do, even though he is out there telling people, I don't care what what order you watch it in. I don't care if you watch all thirteen hours. You can dive in anywhere, see if you like it, and then approach it however you want to. I think there's only one real structural key you could do with this. You can watch episodes one. 
and then 3, 4, and 5, and then jump back and watch episodes 2, and then 6, but then 7, 8, 9, and 10, you need to watch in order. Yeah. So you can, 10, you can do those separate, like, and see, you, you fucked up, period, by separating 10 from anything. You, you should have just watched 9 straight into 10, watched it as a hour and a half block. Well, I tried to when I fell asleep. No, I, I understand, but I'm saying that's how that should be watched because otherwise I feel like you judged the final episode completely differently. I put the final episode... The final episode could be the first episode as far as I'm concerned. No. With everything that she's spewing and talking about will happen. If you look at it... If you hear that first, after she's danced, done, to, done what she's done and danced around, all the stuff she's talking about... That plays right into the first couple of episodes. It's a giant you, loop. You could have that element, but you could also, like, no. That ending, no. It gives away way too much. No. How, though? She's just talking shit. Unless I miss something. What did I miss? It's just her. It, oh, no. The with trajectory the, of all I'm, of that is just, no, it doesn't. That's right. With the No, I forget, that I, I forget that the high priestess that's does reign supreme. Saying. I'm thinking Jenna Malone as like. I understand. I'm saying you could isolate maybe that, that section yeah. possibly. But I even think that plays into it. Like There is structure to it, I guess is what I want to try and tell yeah. people. And if anything, if you do start this from the beginning, if you're not vibing with it by the end of the first episode. By stop. all means, tap Just out stop. 110%. But if you are only solely struggling with the pace, get, through, it a get through episode two and get to episode three because that is where I feel like it becomes a show with a plot that you can wrap your head around and start to kind of like get the momentum of it. It actually has scenes with characters talking at a certain clip it's not oceans of silence between every line of dialogue okay yeah so i will yeah so if anything again if you really want to watch episode one if you were like eh, i don't know about this skip immediately to episode three four five then two six forward okay that's yeah. what i would recommend to people Men are terrible. Dude, what, Women are going to inherit this earth. That's all. That's that, all. that is pretty that's the much entire, the, that's the entire. And, moral and that's whole. basically what we want you to keep. Yeah, keep just in remember, mind. Um, guys are fucking filthy animals. They are terrible pieces of to, shit. To and women a, will will save your salvation. To make a thirteen-hour series that does have what I feel like is an incredibly strong, powerful, and important statement to make that does not fully reveal itself until seven to eight hours into it is a bit of an ask but i think is a journey worth going on because there will be bouts of the show where you struggle with what is or i think some people this is not me i am fully in the bag for this all of the quote-unquote self-indulgent shit is like candy to me as mm -hmm. far as it goes to like a wr i could watch a a 20-hour cut of the show gladly gladly okay i'm fully on board for it but there will be moments where you're struggling with what is the point of this what is this achieving where is this going it does have a point to it i feel like at the end of the day it really does have something to say it's worth getting to that's kind of all i want to say about the show 
until you and I come back to have a full on. Yeah, no, because there's a lot. I, let's break it down. I will. Pro- I will tell you. There was a point where I was like, I fucking, I fucking wasted my goddamn time for this. Like I was, there was a couple points where I was highly pissed off at what I was watching, yes. and I was just and like, again, "This because... motherfucker! If he hadn't made drive, I wouldn't <laughs> finish it out and see, and see what's happening the, here." Those moments that we don't even have to reference you know here what, on mic that I know exactly know, yes. what you're talking about, yes, are when I am like, "I I saw this. Uh, this makes natural sense because again, watch only God forgives, watch Neon Demon." And you will know everything you need to know about the trajectory of the show. I had the it's same all thoughts. right there. I had the same thoughts in those movies. And so when I had them watching what I watched, I was like, motherfucker, I'm back here. <laughs> but but I did it to myself. Like, you, you, you baited, baited and switched the fuck out of me, man. Like, I, I fell for the neon and the, the, the synth and the gorgeousness of all of it. And here you are kicking me in the nuts. He, it's he knows fuck, what he's exactly. doing. He's, I mean... The fact that he is going to be in Death Stranding, <laughs> I, 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 it amazes catch, me. Did you catch, spoiler, spoiler, did you catch Kojima in this? Where? Okay, episode Don't, four. Spoilers for episode four. Where the fuck is Kojima spoilers in this? Spoilers for episode four. Martin, who has been doing hits for the local gang, gets tasked with killing a guy. And he's he's at he's at this point in the series having a bit of a change of heart of like I want to kill for a purpose I want it to mean something okay so instead of killing this guy outright he stops and asks him hey Damien wants you dead why he's like I owe him some money how like, much okay like ten ten k no eight thousand excuse me eight thousand eight k he's like all right yeah come with me you pre- you probably still need to get that money but so they take a little detour to the Yakuza's. Yeah. A chapter of the Yakuza. And they go in, and what he has to do to get the money is sacrifice not his entire pinky finger, just the top knuckle of it. Which, if you've known and, anything about the Yakuza, that is the one thing you do because you are showing the shame you brought upon your, your family leader, your house. You will gladly give up that. So Okay, so he volunteers yeah. it, and the silent gentleman who steps up and wields the samurai sword, that's Hideo Kojima in a suit. What? Yeah. Holy fucking shit, dude. I did not realize that. Yeah. That was one of my favorite episodes. Just because of like... we I were think, going, I think Because everything said Yakuza assassins. And I'm like, when are we getting to this? And they're there for that little bit. It is what it is. They aren't a big thing. But I just... I, yeah, he did. Only God Forgives is like very Hong Kong, China. I want to see him do... It's Thailand. Thailand, sorry. But yeah. Excuse me. Thailand, whatever you want to call it. Bangkok has them now. Um, but I want to see like a, I want to see his version of like, I guess the cyberpunk game that's coming out or like a Blade mm-hmm. Runner or like something ridiculous. Like I want to see his Neo future, neon infused synth future where crazy I, shit I would, happens. But I have to go I, back and, and look at that. Maybe you could see him eventually headed that direction because in a lot of ways, and this would be a nice place to end. I think Too Old to Die Young is about as strong a statement he could make on the current state of the world, essentially, yeah. and like all he really has to say about modern society. So I don't know really where there is for him to go thematically or narratively other than the future. <laughs> so, well, are we going to get the, uh, a future the with this, dawn though? Of, the dawn of innocence, if you will. Um, yeah. I, don't, I really don't think we're ever getting the second season of this unless, you know, 
unless there's a turnaround in the response to it or something and there's a huge demand for it. But at the end of the day, this is a show for people who are already in the bag for him. This is not going to win any new converts. No. Really. You have to have a certain interest level to begin with. And even within that, I think there's going to be division between people who think that it was a worthy endeavor and a good use of their time and his time and people who thought it was, uh, you know, overly indulgent and are totally out on him now. Because that can definitely happen with people from time to time. Well, trust me, I was for like two episodes. I could tell you, I I said as much from the the get-go. I was like, before the show even released, I was like, this is, I can tell you I'm going to love it. Like, I just, I, that is my level of investment with him. And I kind of knew that literally from the first night when Only God Forgives was in New York and L.A. And I, I'll say this right here, illegally pirated it because I was never going to be able to watch it in Columbia. I had already been told as much. And so I watched it the first night it was available and read like, you know, I'd already read the can reactions where it had been booed and everything. And I was like... I think this movie's like a fucking masterpiece and a lot of people hate it. Okay. I think I just am on board for this guy and that has held true pretty much ever since, uh, through me seeing neon demon in the theater with one other guy (laughs) on opening weekend here in, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Oh yes, we are on board for NWR done already then no, i no, have been noah <laughs> no but I was, I was i've been no 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 okay. we, we can we can write it all yeah i agree with what you're saying i i i do want to i do thing. I, I think would, before we talk about this in more depth maybe you want to rewatch some episodes in isolation but i highly recommend go back and watch only god forgives so i watched drive before i started the series because mm-hmm. my plan was to like go through the three most recent ones in order um I, wa- I made it to drive and then it released and I was like, I'm not taking the time for Jewel to Die Young. And then as I'm watching the show, I'm like, I need to watch Jewel to Die Young again. Um, and so I... You mean Only God Forgives again? Yes, I totally do. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. So, as soon as I finished Too Old to Die Young, I watched Only God Forgives and then I watched Neon Demon like last night. So, uh, yeah, I think the, those what you, specifically... What are you, you haven't really talked about. What are you saying on Neon Demon? I love it. I mean, I'm totally in bag for it. I, I think... From, if we're strictly talking movies and we're not including Too Old to Die Young in this, I think Only God Forgives is my favorite and his best. Uh, I think uh, Neon Demon is is up there around the like Bronson Valhalla Rising territory, and Drive is like scales back and forth between those because again, it is kind of the anomaly. It's the weird one where like his taste just happened to overline. W- overlap with the mainstream the for just a yeah. little bit mm-hmm. but even with it still a hundred percent that is a an nwr movie it's just it was a little bit more approachable for some people but it's still a lot caught a lot of people off guard with the level of violence and the way it's like communicated to you so yeah i've been basically existing in this headspace while i was going through the series and since but i'm just trying to keep the nwr vibes going so i've been rewatching all of his stuff Notably, I've only ever seen the first in the Pusher trilogy. They are all on Shudder right now. Yeah, I saw that. So 
that's that's the next thing on the docket for me. But I'm I'm trying to stay in his wheelhouse for like until we have all of these definitive discussions we're planning to have. And you you're in the wheelhouse. There's a lot to unpack. You're in the wheelhouse with that when you're making the music you're making now, right? Like you have that entranced vibe of like. Well, specifically, like I the stuff I have made most recently, like within the last week, is literally just me trying to rip off Cliff Martinez and yeah. like do what he's doing. So, yeah, maybe I'll play some of that. On the on, way out, on the end of this episode, play a play a who did it better? Like you or like a who who is this? Is I would a, never. Is this a Cliff Martinez or is it a Noah Blanchard? Like is it? Yeah, yeah. Just I do that. Label it, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Uh, until well, you, bending not breaking, we'll be back. Uh, of course, on Tuesday. I don't know when we'll be back again to discuss this, but we will definitely have more on Tool to Die Young. So we'll we'll call this Volume One of this discussion. Yeah. Uh, and uh, to be continued, I have been so we're Noah. Have, we're going to have nine more episodes, right? Shut the Nine more up. conversations about this. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. All right. I have been Noah. And I've been Gavin. And we've been the Blanchard Brothers. Thank you for listening to the TV Arc, brought to you by the Arc of E Network. Have a fantastic week. That was terrible. I can't think of any cool things from that show to say <laughs> at all. Yeah. Yeah. No <laughs> 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 <laughs>
I, I think this show was like tailor made for us. We're two of I, I feel like a very small group of people who are just in the bag for Nicholas Winding Ruffin and pretty much everything he does. And which what know, does that say about us as human beings? I, I, I don't know. And I wrestled <laughs> with it the whole time I was watching this show, but yeah, whereas some people you start trying to sell them on a 13 hour movie essentially uh, about kind of the the absolute depths of depravity uh, that humanity is capable of uh, and arguably like I would say easily one of the three darkest uh, again if you want to call it a TV show but period just like one of one of the three or four darkest things I've ever seen and ever sat through. It's a tough sell. Uh, for yeah, but sure. you still haven't seen Midsummer yet. So this, this is true. Uh, <laughs> that of course you haven't seen us talk about on the movie arc, uh, because we're, we're busy with the old, uh, Michael Mann over there, but hopefully we'll catch that soon. I know Gavin didn't even see hereditary in the theater. Uh, so we'll, we'll see if we can convince him to, to check that one out. I would love to know what he thinks of Midsommar. And I would love to get your thoughts too, but I don't want you to spoil anything. I, I just, I know you liked it. so I won't say a word. Good. Uh, okay. So, we're, we're presuming anybody who's actually listening to this episode has at least watched some of the show at this point. So, we figured we'd kind of work through chronologically episode by episode... Uh, as kind of our general guideline. So if you are in the midst of the series, you can kind of, you know, just tap out whenever we start to get to something that you haven't gotten to yet. We'll, we'll try not to jump too far ahead and we'll save kind of our overall thoughts towards the back half, if that works for you. I Yeah, you are the leader here. I'm just here for the ride. Okay, uh, well, we'll while we're just winging it, I feel like a good place to start before we get into the show, I did this with Gavin a bit, and just your introduction to Refn, uh, your kind of relationship to him over the years, your excitement level going into the show, and kind of overall thoughts on whether you thought it was 13 hours well spent, or, uh, you know, a bit of a waste of your time. <laughs> yeah, um, it was... So for me, I first got into to Refn through Drive. I think that's probably the the, the outlet that most people found yeah. him through. Um, I was in a film class at the time. I was at school at App State uh, in doing film studies, and the the marketing for that really pushed it as a uh, Fast and the Furious style of movie, uh, Turbo, or just it really looked like a knockoff from the beginning. And you're just kind of like. What is Gosling uh, doing in this? Yeah, what, what, what in the world is Gosling doing, doing in this? In this? Yeah, what's uh, Carrie and, Mulligan doing in this? Yeah, and um, in lieu of like a test, our our uh, film teacher was like, uh, "Just let's go see this. You go see this instead of this essay or whatever he wanted us to write." Sounds like um, an awesome teacher. Yeah, well, we were studying uh, noir at the time, noir at the time, and um, so I think he just kind of felt like it was perfect um, yeah. for that. Definitely was absolutely hooked after seeing it in the theater um, and then kind of went and backtracked and, and saw Bronson and then tried to make it through the entire Pusher series, didn't, um, didn't get through the whole thing. Bronson, Valhalla Rising, Only God Forgives, Neon Demon, and ultimately I think I saw Only God Forgives and Neon Demon 
their release weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I've always, for at least for those two outings, have just been in it. And anytime he puts something out, I'm I'm likely going to watch it as quickly as I can. Yeah, um, I mean, we've been riding the hype train on this show in particular for well over a year. We started filming back in 2017, and I think at that point they had made some announcements, and we were just kind of like, um, yes, when? Yeah. And then it didn't even wrap until late 18, 2018. Yeah, and I think it was late last year that we got the word via Cliff Martinez that the show that we originally assumed was you know, probably going to be you know, 45, 50-minute episodes, 10-episode season, traditional structure... Uh, that he was continuing filming, going back for some reshoots, and uh, that the editing process was also super elongated, and that Cliff Martinez had produced over 16 hours of music for this thing. So that's where we initially heard 16-hour runtime, which I assume an even longer cut exists somewhere. And I want that cut. Let me get that cut. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, But... I'll watch the whole thing. Yes, Without so, any hesitation. That, I remember, like, either calling or texting. I don't know if I was at work when I first saw it or what, but immediately calling or texting you and just being like, dude, I, I have this grand theory that he had it pretty much, you know, in the can, and then he was watching Twin Peaks The Return and was like, you can do this now? You're allowed to do this? And was like, hey, Amazon, let me... Let me get a couple more mil, you know. Let me, let me, let me, let me tweak this a little bit, and then all of a sudden we have a thirteen-hour movie uh, that follows none of the established rules of what a television episode is supposed to be structured like, uh, or what a series is supposed to be structured like, for that matter. And at the same time, because of the runtime is able to indulge and force you to linger in places that most movies kind of have to keep moving things along. Uh, But he just, he gets to dwell in it. Pace, uh, I think, is a a good place to start as we start talking about the first episode. Yes. Because we mentioned it when Gavin and I talked. The first episode is a tough sell uh, for anybody who's not already in the bag for this, excited about it, going into it. And well, yeah, like... well, let's call it what it is. The series is a tough sell. Like, it, yes, anything. The last two mo- film outings have been polarizing at best. Um, I mean, you, you either are in it or you're not. And I think the people who are in it are in it, and the people who aren't in it have no interest in in pursuing and even engaging um, with a relationship them, yeah. with with Refn. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think at a certain point you just have to decide like is this show for you because it very clearly will either you'll be in it or you'll sit there and say nope not for me yeah no. uh, and pacing I, being the biggest complaint that I've seen uh, uh, it's like oh it looks beautiful but god is it slow yes um, Gla- glacially paced uh, seems <laughs> to be the, the key phrase that everybody likes to keep using I, I can't disagree with that uh, but I do think even in that first episode it, it starts to feel purposeful and you you get into this this trance-like state and that's i think where he wants you for most of this but it's and it's a different approach to the pacing as well because it's like there's not a lot of flashy stuff going on in the frame it's not like i'm lingering on this because i want you to take a look around it's more just i want you to just 
feel the length of this sit in the tone the vibe of it sometimes that vibe is incredibly uncomfortable uh so I, I would just be so fascinated to talk to somebody who has no real knowledge of him or relationship, just found the show, and just through their natural, you know, well, I started this thing, so I'm, I kind of want to see where it goes, uh, how far they made it, if they made it to the end, and what did they ultimately make of it? Because, yeah, there should be giant red flags all over this show, and there there's some warning labels, eventually, uh, mostly in episode five we'll get to that okay so episode one we meet our ostensibly main protagonist mr miles teller uh as martin good old martin yes good old martin uh as i referenced in the uh the earlier episode where we discussed this you you find out within the first hour and a half that old martin is dating a 17 year old and he's been dating her since he or since she rather was 16 uh, and he is he's 30 now okay just to clarify he is big old trashy human just a just a real just a real kind of Um, uh, and again that's something that's introduced to you late in the game in the first episode and for all intents and purposes you're like this is you know this is my dude this is the hero cop you know is he dirty is he not is he maybe even undercover like getting dirt on his partner what is the level of their relationship etc etc got a lot of questions and he continues to be pretty enigmatic for most of the series i would argue uh when you kind of think you have your head wrapped around what he's all about there'll there'll just be a moment or a look or you remind yourself uh he's dating a 17 year old and you have to reframe everything in your brain so we got that going on uh his partner is killed very early in the first episode larry gets gunned down by jesus uh who's going to be very important to the series okay this is all stemming from an incident involving martin larry and jesus's mother magdalena very important character who... Yeah, but even before we get to that point, you have this moment for Martin where you're trying to pin whether or not he is good or bad. Uh, you're trying to put the label on him of whether or not you're rooting for him. And as his partner is pulling this girl out of the car and just outwardly creating their own Me Too movement, um, he's saying nothing. And he is he's not stopping him. I believe, he's yes, not partaking I believe the, in it. The first time that he speaks is after Larry has asked the girl for her wallet um, either to open it or to like literally hand over the cash and the first words I think we hear from Martin are do it or do it. Yep. open it like that's it and you're you're waiting for that moment of like okay when's he gonna like kind of kind of cool this off or like inter- intervene here and it doesn't give you that and again we're in the first like 15 minutes of this episode <laughs> So. I think, and I think reference just kind of saying you're looking for a, a, a person to root for. You're looking for a hero. They're not here. They yeah. are like this is not the entire first episode. You're going through it, and you're like, I am struggling to find someone to connect to that I want to win whatever is going to go down. Yes, um, and if you're a person that like inherently needs that in most of your narratives, like need somebody to root for, this, <laughs> this is, is not the, the show, show for you, you at all. Uh, until late in the game, and even then, um, there, there's issues. Okay, so 
that's kind of you know the the thing that sets everything into action is the murder of Martin's partner. Okay, Martin and Larry uh, had been working, and Martin is going to continue to work for a man named Damien, who runs a local criminal organization that we, at the end of the day, through the entirety of this series, don't really know exactly what they do, uh, where exactly they're from, uh, and it, I, I guess it doesn't matter. I guess it's not really that relevant. But anyways, so we got that element. He's already kind of leading a double life, Martin. He's basically doing hired hits for gangsters uh, in his off time, and he's, you know, not, from what we see early on, not that great of a cop. So, Do you see that as kind of a parallel to drive the moonlighting as a for sure versus a getaway driver or a kind of exploiting your your dark side, I guess? Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting because the drive character as like pretty much outright heroic as he is in that movie and you see all of his motivations pretty clearly spelled out for you visually uh, you there is the element that he is a criminal uh, he assists in criminal activities and he's also a pretty brutal individual when properly motivated uh, which totally like blows Carrie Mulligan's mind during that elevator scene. So it's kind of buried just beneath the surface. Martin, I think, is interesting in as much as he is literally walking both sides of the law. And we never get, because the show just doesn't give you stuff like this, we never get a scene where it's like, well, yeah, here's how I fell into working for Damien, and this is how it happened, and boy, here's how I feel about it. Like... They, they're never going to give you a scene that just sits down and explains that. The scene well, would be terrible, first of all. So we're left to kind of parse out how we feel about each character and their moral judgments, essentially, uh, in a given situation. And I think that goes back to, like, kind of the start of his career. Because at least the first pusher... Uh, I, I have not gotten to the third one yet. I have rewatched one and two. But the first pusher, it, these are not, these are not quote-unquote good guys, but it's about perspective. And simply, you know, the natural empathy that you feel towards a character that you're watching most of the time, you start to give a shit about Frank, the lead character in that movie, even though he's, he's not a great dude. He's kind of a prick. He's a little despicable. But as things, like, as the walls start to close in throughout that movie the way he sells the stress of that and what what circumstances can drive individuals to do uh, is really, I feel like, at the core of pretty much everything he does. But... Yeah, majority of are, his characters are not a yes, good and, and strip, or... Like, just, stripping away a lot of the, the dialogue or explanation lets you be... The detective to a certain extent i think that's something you and i talked about which is like that you would expect a show like this to have a central mystery like we're trying to figure out you know this murder who did it blah blah blah. it's a film noir or we're investigating this random thing we got turned on to and it's not that at all if anything the the mystery of the show is the characters themselves and you as the audience member are the detective to a certain extent because you're trying to figure out 
is it okay to like this person? Is it okay to root for them? Are are these people we're about to meet in episode three, which we'll get to in just a sec, are their motivations 100% virtuous? Where did they come from? Et cetera, et cetera. So, okay. What else major do you, I guess we need to talk about, we need to talk about Billy Baldwin. <laughs> You're fucking Billy Baldwin, <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> yes. Uh, what a turn. What a turn. Uh, it's just like his coked up Alec Baldwin impression. A hundred percent. Like, yeah, that we definitely can't take credit for it, but I think everybody had the same thought the second he was, it was like, that's not Alec Baldwin. That is Billy. I knew Billy was going to be in the show, but he is just, this is an Alec impression, right? This is like unhinged Alec Baldwin screaming at his daughter on the phone, but like dialed back just a little bit. Yeah. But he's he's still acting at like a 12 throughout the entirety of this series. Uh, A a tour de force of a kind. Uh, I thought he was fantastic. I mean, I think everybody is fantastic in this show. But that's one of those. How do you, how do you convince somebody with any kind of profile to take that role in particular? Well, it's almost like uh, Keanu Reeves showing up in Neon Demon, and he's this just like grimy, dirty. And that, the more and more I think about it, and I've, I haven't heard him specifically state, I need to uh, rewatch Neon Demon with commentary. But I, if I had to guess, I think a bit of it is. We all love Keanu. Like, inherently, you put him on screen and we're like, oh, I like that guy. So having him be the one to say all this heinous shit, it almost takes a little, like, it simultaneously adds a little bit more of a sting because you're like, oh, I don't want Keanu talking to Elle Fanning like that. Like, please stop. But at the same time, you're okay because you know, you're like, well, I know Keanu's not like that at all. You know, Keanu's Keanu. This is very clearly, (laughs) this is very clearly just a performance. So yeah, it's like, it simultaneously makes it darker and also makes you more okay with it because it's somebody you're like, Oh, it's my buddy. It's Keanu. Uh, And one of the things I've always kind of appreciated about reference movies is they're always like one step outside of reality. Like there, it's all just like one mythos, like to the left of reality, whether it's the I'm thinking the end of this series specifically, or all the imagery mm-hmm. around the high priestess of death, uh, death, and then Deanna at the end getting blinded and then getting her sight back, and um, or even a Neon Demon where it really is just like, all right, is, is Elf Fanning like an actual demon? Like, is this something that exists in this world? Um, yeah. And so I, I really appreciate about that, but that I think that allows the campiness, the overacting to play as in like, nope, this is just something that exists. Like Billy Baldwin's character exists in this world. Yes. And it's, it's exactly it starts to establish is. that kind of, there are no rules tone of something like a twin peaks, for instance, where you can vacillate between like extremely dark subject matter, violence, uh, like human tragedy, and then two seconds later have like a moment of slapstick, if you will, or which we get, really... in, we get in yeah. five, we get that in the full. Uh... Yes, we do. <laughs> uh, so speaking of the tarot cards, this is something I'm kind of working through as I rewatch the series, which I'm slowly making my way through again, because as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, uh, big little lies is on right now. 
Stranger Things just happened. I am way behind the 40 million people, or households rather, who have already watched all of season three. So, yeah. Uh, you, you and I actually haven't talked about that. Where Have you even started? I went to go start it last night, and the person that I stealed Netflix from had canceled their account. Oh, okay. So, I, I got <laughs> I I to figure it out. Up. I can get you fixed up on that. Yeah, uh, no, appreciate no it. No problem. I got to I got to get back in. Queer Eye season 4 happens in uh in, at the uh towards the back end of July and you know I'll I love that. To, I was going to say I'll have to tell Veronica cuz I don't think she knows she's getting new episodes. Oh yeah. Um yeah. Just was a gem of a show. She burned through all of it like she just started watching it randomly after probably a solid like 2 months of me just like Hey, we could always throw this on. Like people say it's amazing. Alex loves it. <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> uh but yeah, she just started watching it on her own, and then come to find out, she's watched like pretty much every episode. But she'll be she'll be excited. Hey, she's actually she's she can probably hear me right now. But Veronica, there's there's new uh, new Queer Eye at the end of July. Just thought you should know. Yeah, I've cried more she's, in my she's adult ecstatic life. Static right now. I don't know if you can hear that. She's yeah, ecstatic. Jul- July nineteenth. All the Jonathan Vanessa you can ask for. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, but I've cried more in my adult life. You would have thought I would have cried more at uh, the uncomfortableness of too old to die young, but no, <laughs> they just those. Uh, the, yeah, the, I was trying. Guys on queer, I hit you right in the heart. If uh, if old too old to die young ever solicited tears from me, absolutely not. Not even close. I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. No, not even not a moment. Not really. Uh, what I go to reffin for. Um, <laughs> I cry a little bit at night when I go to sleep after <laughs> watching <laughs> yeah. it, but the show itself, uh, not in the moment. It's more a about bit you know, in in the shower that yeah, you take right, before exactly. you or after every episode. Yeah. Um, so it's not coming off. Yeah. This feeling isn't coming off. So okay, again, we're assuming you've seen it, but we mentioned Billy Baldwin. Billy Baldwin is the father of said seventeen-year-old girlfriend of Miles Teller's character, Martin. Uh, that's Janie, correct? Janie's got a gun. Janie's got a gun. But she, she doesn't have a gun. She doesn't. Have, Janie doesn't have a clue. She should have ran away. Uh, yes, ran way far away <laughs> from the pain. Okay, we got it all in there. So those, those are really the big beats. Uh, we, we meet Janie's dad. There's, there's a stuffed tiger. But just there's. When else are you going to see that? When else are you going to see Billy Baldwin, Miles Teller, Stuffed Tiger, long single take? Like, that's got to be like, what, a, a 10, 12 minute conversation? Or at least it feels like it? It feels it for sure. And, and it, it is. Just with the weird sexual <laughs> undertones, undertones yes. the entire time of the way that he feels about his daughter. Yeah. Um, yeah, creepy man. Like, those are really the key things. And then we also have the start of. Damien's like, hey, Larry's dead. I don't care. You got to keep working for me. You got to make this stuff right. You got to work off your debt, essentially. You screwed up. This is your fault for yeah. your partner getting shot. Yeah. So the, tar- the tarot card for this one, the title, is The Devil. Um, yes. And if you're going just based off of the meaning of that card, according to my Reddit research, um, if it's upright, it, it speaks to the shadow self, the attachment, addiction, restriction, and sexuality. If it's reversed, it's releasing limiting beliefs, um, exploring dark thoughts, and then detachment. And so, um, well, it seems a lot of people feel like the devil is either is likely Damien, 
Um, or, or it could be Larry who is leading Martin down this path, but Martin's doing the one who's exploring these dark thoughts and um, is clearly detached throughout the Very entirety so. of, and of, the sh- of the episode. Yes, detachment is, I feel like, a key word for every episode. Uh, but yeah, I, I mentioned earlier, that's definitely something I want to look at as we as we go through and as I do my rewatches as well, because the element of which way the tarot card is facing having dual meanings i feel like you can probably chart that like each side is represented within a given episode you can uh, definitely absolutely draw parallels to each of them so i i am uh sad to say very unfamiliar with the the tarot so in watching this i was like oh these are cool titles and i got that it tied in but i have having no knowledge and not like doing research as i was watching them all of that aspect was lost on me until I started doing a little research afterwards. I will shout it out because I think it was kind of both of our key source of research. I know you said you went to Reddit as well, but uh, Father, Son, and the Holy Gore.com, I believe. Uh, Father Gore, I believe, is the pen name of the gentleman who wrote all of these recaps. He, he cranked these things out. I think he just marathoned the series. And it Which, is good on you for doing that, because that's 100%. not... It is, I'm going to say, inarguably, it's the best writing I've seen devoted to the series thus far. To He's be fair, there's fan. not a lot of writing devoted to the series. Yes, no, there was a lot of, hey, why did he give us episodes four and five? This is bullshit. How do I review this show? And I was like, well, you could go watch it on your own time on the free like I'm sure you have access to Amazon Prime if you write for a website so I I don't know if there was much follow up I have seen a few more articles trickling out I think I saw a super positive IndieWire piece on it uh, that said it you know yes glacially paced but brilliant in its own way which I 100% agree with so uh, so end of the episode Martin is tasked with uh, hey, you got to go kill this guy. And we have the, the scene in the chop shop. Uh, this is our, our first song on the, the brilliant soundtrack that accompanies all of this. Uh, but this is the first track that appears on the soundtrack. This is Naked Guy Fight by Cliff Martinez, of course. <laughs> I love the song titles. Love the song titles. Uh, this was just all kinds of tense and like gorgeously photographed glacially paced of course and then just an explosion of violence that's over very very quickly and kind of honestly established something that you and I continually brought up to each other as we'd have our little chats I, I stayed pretty well ahead of you you finished what a couple, couple days ago uh yeah 4th of July was when on I 4th of July awesome. wrapped it but uh this I think was kind of the first instance of me noticing a lot, a lot of, I don't know, restraint, if that's not something I expected to feel about the show, but you will continue to delve into like increasingly darker and darker subject matter, but the way that he uses the camera to communicate those things to you is kind of remarkable to me. It, it's a lot of suggestion and then making you sit with the thoughts of that suggestion, but never really showing you like a lot of full-on gore there are def- i mean the the violence is there it's a nicholas winding reffin piece but considering some of the places we go i i thought it was a good 
pretty so, remarkable that it it pulls its punches, but it doesn't feel like it's pulling its punches. You know what I mean? Well, and I don't know if if that's even the best way to say it. Like, you know, oh, it's happening. Not. You're you getting have. that feeling. You know exactly what you're not seeing. Um, and one of the biggest, another one of the big complaints for the show that you see is just like, yeah, there's no narrative, there's no storytelling. It's just photography, and you're just kind of like, if you got to be paying attention because that everything he shoots is in um, support of the story that as it goes forward. Um, and yes, and there lot, are some like, I feel long like the, oneers, but it's yes. all in service of the, I, I need like, you to have this information visually. Yeah, I feel like the visual storytelling gets even more amped up and like abstract as you get deeper into the show. One thing I did encourage people to do last time, uh, if you're a little wobbly after the first episode. But you're still, you know, give it... I could give it a chance. I could give it a chance. Jump immediately to three. I think you'll agree with me here. Because two is almost the... Okay, seriously? Like, are you sure this is for you? Are you sure you want to stick through the next 11 hours of this? Are you sure? Because two is the slowest episode of the entire series. Um almost entirely subtitled I could tell you in about a minute everything that happens in the episode but it's an hour and 20 minutes it, but it's it is one of the best looking episodes and it's where he kind of scraps his dark neon exactly and, so and much, really so expands this this desert kind of Oh man, the the way he plays with lighting, and then you get that really awesome oneer going uh, in the in the cop's office. Um, oh, ama- amazing scene! Just and then people are just like, "Oh, it drags and it drags," and you're just like, "I I could yeah, not take my well, eyes off well, the screen." I was gonna say, yeah, you'll say it drags and it drags and it drags until you get to the end of this episode and what ultimately happens, which is okay, Jesus returns south of the border to Mexico uh, after having killed Larry. He, he's fled America. He's avenged his mom, as, as far as he knows, and he's he's gone back home to his uncle's place. Uh, Don Ricardo, correct? Correct. Who were, br- we get a brief scene, I say brief, it's like seven or eight minutes, in the first episode, uh, we initially see Don Ricardo having his colostomy bag changed, uh, and then we transition to like Jesus is back there already uh he presents the gun that he did it with they talk about Magdalena etc etc we eventually by the end of that scene get the established relationship as far as Jesus knows that is his uncle uh and clearly his uncle is very fond of his uh late mother Magdalena so we follow him back down there and in episode two we meet the most important character of the entire series, Yaritza, the mysterious, enchanting, uh, beguiling, I throw some other adjectives in there by all means, uh, Christina Rodlow, right now my, my, probably my performance of the year. We, oh, we still stunning. Got, we still got plenty of, v- very plenty little of screen time. We still time. got some TV. Uh, yes. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, yes, you could say that, but I feel like her, just her presence, period, 
I mean, it is her show in my mind. Whenever I think about the show, I don't, I don't think about Miles Teller. I don't think about John Hawks. I maybe, I maybe think Jenna Malone first. Um, but she so clearly to me is like, that's who this show is about, but it, it takes its sweet, sweet time to reveal that to you. Well, and I think you get it like at the very beginning of the show, Larry's talking about like, this girl's going to kill me, man. Like this, the women, women are the worst. They're going to, they're the death of me, right? This very misogynistic thing. And I think Reffin's yes. kind of saying like, you little do you know, the high priestess of death is coming for you all. So like yeah. some way, shape or another, like, and we, we slowly see kind of the ratcheting up of the social commentary. And his kind of bizarro, surreal version of that. Most of it isolated to the police station, uh, <laughs> which we get to in episode three. Okay, all that really happens in episode two, uh, eventually Don Ricardo dies. And his son, Miguel, who's kind of the black sheep of the family, if you will, uh, he he's going to take over. Is he going to keep the peace with the police? Uh, no. Might have a little something to do with the fact that he just lost, you know, several thousands of dollars in this soccer bet. Uh, and again, that goes back to that extremely long scene was all to set up. Like, they're joking back and forth. They bet on this game. He loses the game. Don Ricardo dies later that evening. It's like, well, I could either, you know, keep the peace and pay off this chief of police or, oh, wait, I'm now the head of the cartel or this chapter of the cartel. I could kill all of the police in the area and just own whatever I want down here, <laughs> which is what they do at the end of the episode. They execute uh, pretty much all of the police force in their little town, and that that's where we leave it, if I'm not mistaken. We don't yep. we don't know what's going to happen with Miguel for, for quite a while, for about three episodes. Yeah, and the tarot card for this is the lovers, and so upright love, harmony, relationships— uh, values aligning and choices reversed uh, disharmony self-love um, misalignment of values and so yeah you get both of those and as you see Jesus and, and Don Ricardo feeling the same way um, about what this cartel should be then you've got Miguel and, and his uh, right hand man who are who just kind of see, seem like they're just kicking at his buddies and they're like great we got this cartel now let's go get blitzed and um, be drug lords and you get Jesus on the backside of it who's just like, nope, this is going to be my thing. This is going to be what I'm bringing forward, and I'm going to continue Don Ricardo's mission. Um, yes. And again, and again, the show, which constantly loves to take left turns or just slight left turns from where you think it might go, they they don't come into direct conflict, uh, Miguel and Jesus. If I remember correctly... Um, <clears throat> part of the climax of this episode is them having almost a a ritualistic shower in cocaine, uh, as if he's anointing him. <laughs> that does that's episode two, correct? Yeah, I think you're right. Yes, yes. Uh, so yeah, you know, I was fully prepared for like, okay, we're gonna get like the war for the cartel down in Mexico. That's going to be going on while all this other stuff is going on. And then we'll eventually bring it together. Maybe we'll see what happens. It does not go that way. Okay. So moving into episode three, you talk about the police station a little bit. And then I think kind of like 
three through five, we can kind of cluster together a little bit. Um, if you haven't made it to episode five, that's God, the one. People, that's the ticket. That, that's the again. That's part of the two that he screened at Can, uh, and it's. <laughs> I th- I think it's the roughest episode. Uh, I don't well, that, know how you felt. I it's interesting. I don't know if I had a tougher time sitting through one. Uh, I mean that opening that for sure is um, brutal in five. Um, yes. It's weird because it is definitely it, to me it feels like the most out of place episode as it comes to like pacing, story, what's going on. A lot happens in five and it's messed up. But if you were to sit there and say like, "Hey, watch episode five of Too Old to Die Young," you are not getting a great look into what the rest of the series is. Very um, true. But you're also But it getting, is a great episode. <laughs> you're also getting a great standalone isolated thing that I think has the potential to possibly compel some people who may have looked right past this to just jump on board. But I, I don't recommend just diving into it other than the fact that again the runtime on it, it's basic I mean they're each episode feels like essentially its own movie, but this one truly does. I mean, it's it's Martin's trip down to Mexico. Why does he go down to Mexico? Because in episode three, um, he meets two very important people, <clears throat> portrayed by uh, two of the best actors on the show, two of my just personal favorites in general. Uh, Jenna Malone, who is a victim's advocate uh, with a... She like with the police department. She works for a law firm. Like, what is the distinction exactly? It almost seemed like a referral type program, or like a uh, either lawyer or cop. So, like, hey, clearly, my guess is probably more on a if a lawyer was like, hey, I know this didn't pan out for you, but here's uh, a therapist. Here's a little bit of place for support. It was kind of how I viewed it. Um, I don't know if they were more specific about it, but that's from my memory. That's kind of what what I was kind of led to believe. Uh, so Martin goes to investigate her after basically piecing together uh, that the individual responsible for a body that he found uh, on his local beat, now that he is a, a detective, uh, he he's moving up in the world very quickly, uh, comes across this body, basically pieces together through a little bit of detective work, that it's this guy named Vigo Larson. Vigo Larson... Is played by Mr. John Hawks, who opens this episode by putting his fake eye in his head. And you and I never actually <laughs> talked about this, but I remember sending you a text because we were just, it was just a lot of like joyful, just like, dude, I can't believe like it's it's available. We can watch it now. So we're like going back and forth a little bit. And I was just like, dude, when, when you get to Hawks's introduction in episode three, like you got to text me because again, the, the stingers at the beginning of every episode, like the way the title card literally comes in. Loved everyone. Just, yes, they're all brilliant, but that one with the music cue and just like, what, wait, what? Is he put, he's putting his eyes in? What's going on? I was just immediately on board. Vigo is ex-FBI, and I don't know if we flat out get it revealed in three or four, but basically what we find out she sets she sets him up and Vigo knocks him down. When people fall through the cracks or people get away with specifically uh, sexual related crimes, mostly I think specifically targeting pedophiles and rapists in general, actually, uh, 
when these things fall through the cracks or extra justice needs to be doled out, Vigo just goes and finds them and, and kills them uh, based on the research and the names that he gets from Jenna Malone, whose character name is escaping me right now. What? Diane. Diana. Diana. Thank you. Diane. Diana. Yes. So, the, the show, all of a sudden, has has a plot. It has some, some things going on. You has can some ca- meat going on. Yeah. You can start to see a trajectory of like, okay, does, does Martin, like, is he trying to bust these guys? Does he want to be a part of this? And that's what's ultimately revealed in a fantastic scene uh, in the diner. At, at the end of the episode but he's been he's been tailing Vigo throughout the episode and he's literally just standing outside of his place in the parking lot and it's just like I don't want to arrest you I just want to talk I'm going to the diner over here like you know if you want to chat show up just great scene between the two of them their whole dynamic which is very very understated uh, throughout the series but builds to what for me, now that I'm recalling it, I, I may have spoke too soon earlier. I I think I got a little choked up at a at a particular scene between Hawks and and Miles Teller. We'll get to it. Yes, we'll on the bed. It. Yes. Yeah. And the uh, title of the show is encapsulated in that shot. Very much so. Very much so. Uh, so that four is. Vigo basically bringing Martin into their world. This is what we do. This is how we track people down. You know, we only take out bad people, et cetera, et cetera. This is still being juxtaposed with Martin having to work for Damien. And it's not until after he meets Vigo and kind of sees another path forward. It's like I've been doing a lot of stuff with a, a lot of detachment from it just kind of because... Uh, because of context, because reasons, I guess. But maybe there's a way for me to continue to do these things, but with some sort of purpose. Uh, what if I only take out the trash? What if I only kill bad guys? And s- well, and I wonder what he's doing here. Like, I wonder because at a certain point, I remember the line: uh, "You like the blood." Like you, like I think that's mm-hmm. Damien says that to Martin. You like the blood. Um, and I think he's wondering if like this is a path that he will find fulfillment in because he's clearly not finding yes, it. Yes, this is also. Else. I mean, he's been on the job as a detective for just a couple weeks now. We get our first scenes at the police department, where the incomparable Hart Bachner um, from Die Hard, Ellis from Die Hard, for most people, who I was very excited to see in the show, and kind of in the back of my head was like, ah, oh, he'll you know. He'll probably pop up for two seconds. I just, I happen to recognize his face in the cast list on IMDb. So happy to see that he he gets a lot to do. Um, he gets a lot of lot scenery to, to chew on. <laughs> and he Inclu- chews it well. Including an entire... I, I like how he, yes. Passion of the Christ reenactment. <laughs> yes, an entire passion play in, in the midst of the LAPD offices to send off Martin... <laughs> Just, also a highlight scene of the entire series just, you watch it for sure because even martin in that scene and i know we're getting a little hit, bit ahead is he's just like i just and, i'm and fucking again, done that, with this and and yes they are taking it so seriously and that entire crew is so bought in 
yeah and his the right hand man to the lieutenant who just like you know hangs on his every word just like absolutely loves this guy wants to be this guy well and to be fair though what a piece of shit it does kind of parallel because i mean i don't know if i would consider it overt but to me it was pretty obvious is you got jesus jesus and magdalena mary magdalene Mm -hmm. like the the comparisons right there the biblical references are scattered throughout oh Um, it definitely wears them on the sleeve uh this is where the fact that i am not a sunday school kid does not come in handy uh because I miss out on a lot of this stuff where I'm like, I know there's religious references here, but I don't quite know how to connect them all. Well, and, but, you know, if we're dealing with Jesus and Mary Magdalene, I can, I can wrap my head around those. Well, and one of the, I know some of these people. Yeah, and one of the weird things about that is that uh, the incestuous nature of Jesus' obsession with his mother. Um, yes. And it's kind of like Jesus and Oedipus got together and yes it's a it's a weird conversation it's a weird edible complex for sure um but jesus but jesus and and mary magdalene you know there was always like was there a romantic relationship there and i'm speaking a little bit out of my own um ass here because it's it's like that i think most people say like no there wasn't but that was always kind of the the, argument being that it's essentially it's immaculate conception so it's, it's only a little weird right like yeah i I guess I've heard similar things, but this the show definitely takes uh, takes its religious imagery and turns it on its head in a lot of uh, interesting ways. So, uh, that's kind of the main thrust of four, if I'm not mistaken, correct? And basically, back half of the episode, he goes to Damien's tasked him with, "Hey, I need you to kill another guy." Martin's like, nah, "Let me take a second on this. Let me let me pump the brakes a little bit." And he asked the guy, hey, what do you owe Damien? Key thing, I rewatched uh, the first episode so far uh, with shout-out to Tim Niles while he was down here for uh, July 4th week. Tried to sell him on it. Hopefully he's, he's watched a couple more episodes by now. We'll see. In the very first episode, when Martin goes to meet Damien for the first time, the guy who's forced to like get on all fours and slap himself as he exits the, his meeting with Damien. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the Asian guy from episode four. Gotcha. Which makes yeah, sense. Just little, just little things like that. That happening within the first episode made me go, "Of course, I've got to rewatch this show." Well, and then the because how how much was he like literally setting up just like in bits where you're so lost and like, oh, there's a dude crawling on all fours, slapping himself. Like this is some dark comedy and like this. You know, incongruous music's playing in the background. Where are we? This is an ice skating rink in the middle of L.A. What What are we doing? Like, all of that stuff. And I was like, oh, no, he's actually, like, there's this little mini story arc with this guy who owes Damien money. Presumably that's the conversation they just had where it was like, you owe me. Get the hell out of here. I'll, I'll check back in on you soon. He doesn't come back, so then Martin is tasked with killing him. Martin don't want to do that, so he... He says, hey, get the money that you owe him, and then we'll go talk to him together. Let's see if we can, you know, get you out of this, essentially. Well, and then the other thing, did you notice, um, was that the girl that they pulled over um, at the in the first episode is the waitress from episode nine. Did not catch that. Yep. Boom. Did not at all. Okay, yeah, this is... It's going to reward rewatches. I'm telling you. Okay. So, 
he tells Damien, hey, I don't want to, like, I don't want to do this nickel and dime bullshit. I don't want to just kill people for you because they owe you money. Like, that's not, that's not my deal anymore, period. Damien's like, I can understand that. Okay, like, what do you, you know, we can find something else for you to do. And that right there, I was like, he's so casual initially that it's like, so can't he just, like, be, like, why don't you guys just part ways right here? But that's not even addressed. It is literally just like, we can find something else for you to do within the organization. Like, clearly, yeah, you're still going to, like, I own you. He's valuable. Yes. <clears throat> so, Martin has the, the fantastic line from the trailer, I, I want the worst guys you got. And that sets us up for episode five, where he takes a little, uh, little trip down to New Mexico. Uh, and you and I, I mean, I feel like you and I did like an hour about this episode over the phone together. We can definitely truncate it. We've already highlighted it a bit, but, uh, it's, it's a standalone. Essentially. It's, it's a, a different kind of bottle episode, if you will. I don't think we cut away to anybody else. We were just with Martin mm-hmm. the, on his journey. And it's considered the highest rated episode. episode of the series. And and I think in our you I think there are some episodes in the back half that eclipse it in terms of what they mean to the series. But I think a sheer pound for pound like entertainment level audaciousness, just I've never seen anything like this. Episode five kind of has it all wrapped up in one semi nice neat little bow. Because again, I think you can watch it in isolation almost as a movie. I, I think you would find it a little unsatisfying narratively but I think you would still be able to track it and kind of piece together like okay I think I know who this character is or what they're all about so you open again with what I I, what I hope takes the cake for the most disturbing thing I've seen all year Chernobyl uh, was Chernobyl episode (laughs) 4 was the the high mark uh, for a bit and then I saw episode 5 of Too Old to Die Young which eclipsed it for me. Now, people who have seen both shows are are screaming into their iPhones, whatever, right now, because Chernobyl was a, a real event, something that actually happened, and the the content of episode four is just like it's one of those you cannot not be moved by it if you have like a beating heart in your body. If, there if is, you're not like, a sociopath, you will feel things. Y- even even if you are a sociopath, I feel like that episode would get to you. It is so next level. I I talked to you about it briefly. I know you haven't gotten to it yet. Um, I almost was like, I don't know if I can watch episode five. Like this has to be as bad as it gets, um, because I can't do anything more than this. And it was like, okay, there's only one more left. I think this is just going to be them wrapping up and like you know sitting in a courtroom for like an hour. I can deal with that. But episode four, we'll talk when you get to it, man. It's rough. Yeah, other rough but shows. But the first, but season, all of that being said, the first five minutes of this episode just perfectly acted. Every single moment of it, I have never like I can never look at James Urbaniak the same. I will never be able to watch The Office the, like, with the same lens on the episodes when just, he's around. I, I just can't do it, man. Like he. I think I told you about this. I was watching <laughs> I was watching documentary now. The most recent season have been posted on Netflix. 
and I was catching up on them partly as an antidote to too old die young not that i mean i didn't take like that many breaks from it and i would watch like sometimes two sometimes three episodes in an evening not not good for the the heart or the soul but i'm watching documentary now and urbaniac shows up and i had literally watched episode five the night before and i had to turn it off. like i was like even though this is comedy i can't watch this right now with him in this i just it was he's so perfectly disturbing uh, just terrifying, terrifying in a totally like he's not physically imposing, but the the way he throws away the harshness of that dialogue, like he's kind of relishing it and having fun with it. He's also it's like this is old hat to him. He's like, yeah, this is like this is how I talk like this is not a big deal. And it makes it that much creepier anyways. The two brothers that Martin is tasked with dealing with, they make uh, hardcore pornography slash snuff films and rape films. Okay, We are told that before we even start this episode. So you, you know what you're getting in for. Okay, And then it even ups the ante. So opening, ugh, so cringeworthy. And then we pull back outside of this compound where all this is going down at and we see... Martin's already there. He's already tailing him. And we basically have a, a nice half hour or more of cat and mouse, uh, of a little undercover pretending to be a drifter who just broke up with his girlfriend, possibly interested in becoming an actor, blah, blah, blah. Uh, again, another great moment of restraint. They show him cell phone footage. Uh, of one of their films to kind of gauge like hey is this guy like is he cool with this some more intense shit essentially and he plays it perfectly Uh, again it bugs me a bit it bugs me a lot that pretty much everything I read about Teller's performance in any of the criticism is just oh he's just doing proto gosling he's just doing the like I'm just not gonna say much I'm just, you know, he barely speaks and he just, you know, just kind of stoic and that's that. It's, there's more going on there. There's, there's a lot more depth. And again, I don't think he's spelling things out for you. I do think he is doing the blank slate thing quite a bit. Yeah, but that's a reference staple. That is a reference staple. I, I was rewatching behind the scenes on Only God Forgives and he and like, he makes Tom Burke do like five or six takes back to back of this, like walking, just walking into the brothel in the, like the early goings of only God forgives just a single shot of him walking in there and he keeps cutting and he keeps telling him, he says, take, he's like, don't force it. Take all the emotion out of your face. He's like, I don't want it. Like, don't show me anything. Just take it away. And it's, it's kind of crazy when you're like, that's his go-to because I feel like most actors get extremely uncomfortable when you tell them, don't use your face. Like, no, lock it in. Don't give me anything. Let me come to you, essentially. Uh, I feel like a lot of people are not in tune with that style. So you see some people, I clearly he casts very well. And the people that work with him are excited too, because I, I don't feel like I've seen an instance where like, Oh, this person was in a completely different movie. Like he always seems he has that Lynchian ability to get people to just 
slip right into the groove that he wants them to be in. Not how everybody else is used to seeing them necessarily, not even playing to their strengths in most cases, but it's, you know, they're there for him, essentially, is what it feels like. And from the brief uh, things I've heard through the can interviews, like it seems like he had a really good experience. I would look forward to the two of them possibly working together again in the future. But more than that, I just want him to do anything and everything starring Christina Rodlow for for the rest of time in perpetuity. Well, yeah, because she's kind of that character throughout the whole thing as well. Like for her, it's the same exact thing. It's this. Stoic... Oh, I spent I spent so I mean literally hours watching the show and then thinking about the show when I was not watching it, just contemplating what was going on with her character before it was ultimately kind of I, again beautifully like spelled out but not spelled out for us in in the way that like I love that the show never just never had like a false note of dialogue where it's like here is some clunky exposition to tell you how we're feeling and to just telegraph everything for you it it, again it does not operate on traditional terms of a tv show or a movie for that matter okay so he tracks down the brothers cat and mouse game ensues uh he eventually lets them lure him back to their warehouse, but uh, the lure is the lure I have never said that word before. It's not a word. There we go. Uh, he has to kill Urbaniac. The other brother slips away. Okay, I, We can breeze right over what he was doing for the, <laughs> the interim. <laughs> and basically we're into a uh, the, the most like intense... Low-speed car chase of all time. The revving of the electric car throughout this entire scene uh, was absolutely hilarious. And then um, the them reminiscing over their fallen brother uh, to the tunes of Barry Manilow was just exactly what you needed to, sp- to break up this episode. Yes, I desperately needed some sort of relief from, and I was just getting a pure pleasure on just like the staging of some of it. The again, I dark comedy all day long, please. Uh, so I, I was on board for it. Anyways, we got the low speed car chase. It's phenomenal. Uh, culminates with basically dragging the br- the brother thinks that he's there for something else. Uh, there's kind of a misunderstanding, but Martin takes this as an opportunity to be like, "Wait, you th- hear about the girl? What?" and takes him out to his trailer out in the middle of the desert there's a girl in a box uh he frees her and she promptly stabs martin that's where we end this episode as you do if you just got released from a coffin that was buried underground a hundred percent and i loved the i was because i fully expected him to possibly do something like this i was ready for like oh that's the end of miles teller on this show he's just gonna bleed out in the desert I really, I, I would not put it past Ruffin to just leave it there. And the ultimate just like, yeah, he he had quote unquote good intentions, but are his morals 100% sound like in his everyday life, in his personal life? I don't know. Does, does he deserve full redemption or to be looked upon as a hero? Maybe he doesn't. So I was like, oh, maybe they'll leave him in the desert. They, they don't, but they, they make you think about it for a second or two. Because episode six, 
guess who comes back to America? Jesus and his new bride, Yaritza. And Chandler Bing's mother. Yes, uh, as their former neighbor. That whole aspect of Jesus had this whole life before where we opened the series at. He's now gone down to Mexico. There's, you know, running jokes about, like, you got to learn Spanish. Your Spanish has got to get better, blah, blah, blah. Seeing him then be so, like, back at home, comfortable with all of the, you know, the rich white people around them. Uh, and seeing that juxtaposed with, like, Yuritsa getting a glimpse at, like, okay, we're still, you know, Yes, we're married, but basically for cartel purposes. I don't really know how I feel about you as an individual. This is kind of a getting-to-know-you sort of scenario. I don't know how my... And I feel like this is key... Again, spoilers if you haven't really gotten past this point. I feel like this episode in particular is key for kind of gauging where she's at headspace-wise. I feel like the more that she sees how much he's, quote-unquote, been corrupted by... Um, American society or just the way he was raised in general being raised within this criminal organization uh, whatever weird incestuous relationship he may or may not have had with his mother they, they, they did have one I don't know why I said may or may not have I think she is already calculating right here I think she was maybe on the fence about could this guy be an ally or is he a pawn and I think this episode is her essentially deciding which way she falls on that. Yeah, so it's it's super interesting to me. So the High Priestess is the card of this episode. Intuition, sacred knowledge, divine femininity all plays a big role for the upright version of this. And then secrets, disconnected from intuition, and withdrawal from uh, is the reverse section. And yeah, you, kinda, you definitely get both sides of the card again, just like every other episode. You've got Magdalena and Yuritsa, who is a, just a reincarnated form of Magdalena, uh, through and f- through, um, both kind of divine femininity. Uh, she's a witch, right? Like, Yuritsa at this point, like, it, it, I, she's a. a I, <laughs> you kind of get your first like. I think you can, yeah. You can kind of look at her. I mean, she she's however you want to take her, and how the extent to which you want to kind of engage with the supernatural aspects of the show, I think, are kind of up to you. But, but they're there. They're there. Oh, 100% they're there. I mean, they are, like, there with a bang by the time we get to episode 9, for sure. But I, I mean, again, that's the stuff I'm wrestling with and still trying to gauge her motivations. Like, I don't know, is she trustworthy? And at this point, I'm still, like, I'm on the Jesus train. I'm like, yeah, dude, get revenge for your mom. Yeah, come back to America and take your empire back from, like, all these people, like... Yeah, I'm totally buying into it. It's not until very late in the game with Jesus where I'm like, oh, never mind. That would be a big mistake. Well, so From the get-go in this episode, I, Yuritsa seems like she controls the power. Everything that's happening is she's she's observing, she's learning, but then it's a conscious decision to be like, I'm going to get Jesus in the palm of my hand. I'm gonna get, yes. I mean, He's going to open up to me. I'm going to understand him. I'm going to make sure that, you know, Though he might feel like he's in control of everything, I'm the one who's really, you know, holding the cards. Um, Mm -hmm. And you really start to see her as the major player. The point that this show exists is she is your 
Gosling. She is your hero um, that you're you're rooting for. Um, and we've already seen her release um, some of the girls that have been trafficked um, by this yes, point. Yes, we totally yeah we totally glossed over that part of that's kind of one of the big reveals of episode two is uh, yeah she's told by Miguel hey after we're done with this girl uh, take her and sell her to one of the other gangs and she we I, I was hoping this scene was going to go a different way and luckily it did but she she doesn't sell her uh, she kills the dude point blank and basically tells her to run and that's the first inclination that like she's there's something going on with her but I immediately was like okay that was I mean that that's all a positive right there you got her out of this terrible situation good okay I like, I like where your head's at and then we slowly see, see the progression and the the party to me in episode six is kind of key we get to see Janie outside of the Martin narrative it's a little bit of a crossover here that I wasn't expecting but totally welcome <laughs> And slaps the shit out of her. <laughs> well, yes, and again, you you and I had we you know when we talked over the phone, you and I had varying opinions on Janie because I I was not a fan from the get go, mainly because of just the dynamic of the relationship. But beyond that, I don't think she's I don't think she's a particularly likable character. But I don't know that she's necessarily supposed to be. Unlikable. Well, it's like she hadn't done anything the... wrong, right? Like she, yeah, she was from a rich family, and but ultimately, her she, she seems she seems very much like an innocent for all. She's intents a, and purposes. she's a cautionary tale throughout the series, right? Like she is the you got to watch who you're you know befriending. You got to watch what you're doing. Um, you can't just kind of live a life but, of you get to do what you want all the time. Um, and part of it might may be informed by the death of the mother and everything, but we do eventually get to like her darker, semi-twisted side, which is an element that's not necessarily present from the get-go. But there's yeah, Janie's Janie's an interesting character, very interesting. In the character. scene that you're speaking of, I'm guessing is uh, when. Martin's wounds open up from when they're sleeping together after her 18th birthday. Yes. So yes, in episode okay, in episode six, she inform in the midst of the party scene, she mentions to her friend, "Yeah, Martin couldn't make it. He got stabbed." Like, and they're like, "Okay," and it's like, "Yeah, he'll be fine though. Just some cop stuff." It's like, "Yeah, okay, cop stuff." So, Yuritsa slaps her around, which I, I was totally on board with not just like I, baby slaps like they play two truths no, and a lie viciously yes. she says you know pick pick the lie that was that was the equivalent of gosling and only god forgives when he smashes the whiskey glass and then uh does the tooth grab on the guy or the i'm gonna grab you by the roof of your mouth and drag you down this yes. hallway uh that was the female equivalent of that <laughs> the the polite version of that, I suppose. <laughs> I don't, yeah, and she says, you know, I've killed 23 people. I think the number's 23, something like that. Um, yeah. And she's like, you haven't done that. And then just just winds up and just slaps the hell out of her. Um, which, like, mm -hmm. in the moment, you're like, oh, dang. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so end of that episode, that it kind of, she has sealed the deal uh, as far as Jesus is concerned. She has completely, like, taken him over. Also worth mentioning, uh, who's who's the henchman? 
Alfonso? Alfonso. Is that the the guy you're talking about who uh, like kind of makes the misogynistic comments about like whether or not she can handle the gun and stuff like that? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Alfonso. I think that's right. Is is high on the list uh, for like your second tier superstars. I think he is one of the best supporting characters, one of the best supporting performances in the series. Uh, the the dressing down that Jesus gives him at the end of episode six is one of my favorite things. And then he, he's got some great stuff to do throughout the rest of the series. Episode seven, we move into the the gang war, correct? Or no, does six begin with we gotta kill Damien? So I can't remember. The magician is the excuse me. Six opens six opens still in Mexico. We're introduced to the fact that Jesus and Yuritsa are now married. And it's we're gonna go back north and he wants to make a statement when he comes back. So he wants um Damien gone. So the first chunk of the episode is the hilariously inept attempts at assassinating Damien. It basically gets passed down the rung of Hitman. Oh my gosh! And the you know the pay payout for the job gets less and less down the rung because everybody's trying to like make a little off the top and not have to do it themselves. And it culminates when the meth head who has been tasked with with for two hundred dollars. Yes, two hundred dollars at this point, which I think the original offer is like north of it's like five, seven thousand, or yeah. not five hundred thousand. Yeah, it's it's a high number. Anyways, so the method who eventually gets tasked with this has has a picture, and I think probably my biggest laugh of the entire series was when he ripped up the wrong side of the picture to snort the meth with, because his girl junkie girlfriend had stolen the pipe apparently. And then gets on his bike to go do this hit all amped up. And like the realization in my head of like, yeah, he's a, he doesn't have the right guy. (laughs) He's that's not Damien. I, I was laughing so hard. uh, Probably, you know, if anybody saw this from a distance, if you observed it from a third person perspective, I look like probably pretty maniacal, but my just escalating laughter until the point where, Damien's right hand gets shot down. You you also have you have Damien like bop into buddies. Jamaican music, just, da- just dancing, just dancing their asses off out under the streetlights, and like the fact that the guy freezes right past them, <laughs> kills the right hand man, and still doesn't even manage to get away. Like Damien just runs out and guns the dude down. That's that. Hope just. Alfonso's like we got him. <laughs> one of the one of the best, just like comedy of errors. Like you know, you can you can throw Tarantino at me, et cetera, et cetera. But like of that ilk, this is this is just gold, man. This this scene plays. This was so great. And then oh. the title card hits after twelve minutes of this. Yes, the longest intro. I think it was twenty minutes, literally twenty minutes. I think this is the longest one of the entire series before we cut into it. Cause it's basically like, here's the job. Here's the setup. We do the, the credits. And then when we come back, Jesus is in, uh, back in his mom's yep. house now. Okay. So eventually they get their hands on. I can't remember if this is six or seven. Is it seven? 
eventually, as the as the drug war escalates on American turf now, uh, Damien and Jesus' forces going back and forth. We don't see a ton of this. We see a lot of the aftermath. Of right. It, and it happens very, very quickly. But basically, Damien's whole crew gets wiped out. All that's left are his hands. Uh, Martin and Vigo discover this. Oh, and... Shit. They discover it on the way home from disposing of something, right? They do. They discover it on the way back from disposing of... Billy Baldwin. Baldwin. (laughs) Because you get this entire episode where Janie... After the slap fighting, Janie turns 18. She has her birthday. Um... Martin has to go. You mentioned the scene earlier. Martin still has his scars from the knife, et cetera, yep. et cetera. Uh, he, he stays the night. I, we talked about this scene over the phone. I was fully convinced that she had murdered Martin in his sleep and that we were about to take a hard left turn into Janie being some kind of like serial killer, possibly. Uh, it did not go that way. But she's <laughs> covered in his way. blood. And, and what r- was reminiscent to me of... Um, the scene in Raw where she wakes up and realizes that, like, yes. Absolutely. her roommate is, you know, dead. <laughs> so that's exactly where my mind went and was like, Martin's dead. <laughs> like, maybe maybe oh, by yeah, accident, okay. but he so, bled out in again, the evening. At, at, at this point, this is the second time I have assumed, oh, Miles Teller's done now, right? <laughs> He's out of the show. Okay. So the next morning, she, she's gone. But once again, Billy Baldwin just checking out the the thirty year old dude that his seventeen year old daughter is. She's eighteen at this point. With. Excuse me. Not that that makes 18. Miles Teller any less of a trash human. <laughs> yes, we should we should mention for those of you who are just like I'm just gonna listen to this episode. I'm not gonna watch this fucking show. They met at the scene of her mother's. Fatal accident. He was the responding officer. This is so not okay. <laughs> well, like, and they don't try. They don't try to no, convince you. I think okay that's like. This. I think a lot of times you get critiques of like all oh, reference. He's just really like, this is really just porn to him. Like he is, you know, just super obsessed with this. And I think at any point you sit there and say, um, no, I think that he very much is saying like, there's at no way, shape, or form does he paint. Martin is the hero in this. Like, I think it is very clear yeah. that he is saying, like, nope, this dude is a shithead. He will get his comeuppance, trust me. Um, and he does. But, yeah, I, this isn't just like, well, I'm going to do this because I want him to have sex with a 17-year-old. It's, nope, I need to really paint to you how terrible this yeah, human no, is. Yeah, no, because it really, it really is the core, like, moral flaw that holds you back from being able to completely identify with him throughout most of the show at least me personally now, there's some other people that may like not have not find an obstacle at all but I think it is intentionally supposed to be pop- problematic for a reason because I'm still and part of why I want to rewatch it I'm still struggling with what I think Martin ultimately represents as a character because we've got plenty of examples of toxic masculinity throughout this show Okay. We have we have Damien in the first episode uh, saying like you know what are you gonna do to Larry's girlfriend that they apprehend and everything. Uh, I've got I got a lot of guys who hate women. Like that's what we're gonna do. Like again, 
that, I don't know if that's a Reffin line. I don't know if that's a Brubaker line. That's brilliant. Like that, that line in and of itself is rough enough. You don't need to show me anything else that happens. You can cut out of that room that they're in at the, towards the end of that episode. You don't need to give me any more than that. But what slowly builds, and I mean, it's in the very first scene, which is the way Larry's talking. What slowly builds is like, this is, this is just a, a terrible place to exist right now. And it's like, well, the place that it's talking about is just like the world, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but with all of that in mind, you know, we got the we got the brothers in New Mexico. Clearly, like evil people. Okay. What do you, what do you think Martin if you had to contextualize it or kind of like oh I need to slot him into what he represents within this movement or this conversation? What is he? Because he seems like he's trying to actively make the world a better place in his own weird fucked up way, but at least like I have these tendencies whatever, at least I can I don't, do them. I don't think he purpose. is. I really don't think he is. Um, like I think he is trying to find what speaks to him because I don't think anything does. Like I don't think he finds connection in anything that he does and so he's he's trying multiple different ways to kind of find what is going to make him feel um anything. Um because I think he's mm-hmm. numb. I think he goes to the world numb. And I think... Yeah, and you, you you could say that, yeah, he's essentially at neutral when we start the series. He's presumably done some pretty terrible things, um, may or may not feel good or bad or indifferent about them, but it's really not until he sees Vigo, like, hey, here's this guy who's a, a, a good killer he's good at what he does he's a little clumsy from time to time he's getting a little up there in age he is dying we haven't mentioned that yet uh but i think he just he's he sees a code there something that he kind of thinks that he has or maybe could get behind to yeah um but I, i i've been trying to like come up with an angle on it and none of them really feel 100% appropriate but I was like is this almost the you know the guy who who thinks that he's woke so to speak or like up on women's issues etc etc but really at the end of the day just uses that as a means to like further manipulate further manipulate them like oh i'm on your side i'm one of the good ones yeah like that snl really, skit where like someone sh- wears like i'm a shit right um kind you of know? i think for me it's uh probably a little bit further removed from that i think it's the um i guess if you yeah, go from th- if you I mean, go from honestly, the brother if you go from the brothers to miles teller to to vigo um you get this kind of like well at least i'm not that bad right like at least i'm not them yeah. um and i think that's kind of what it more represents is someone's like i'm not sexist i'm not you know misogynistic i'm not those guys mm-hmm. look at those guys those guys or or that um speaking to you know in context of the brothers so miles gets to say like martin gets to say i'm not these guys right like but there's there is this yeah. dynamic where he's like he tells a real story and where that- he says yeah i hooked up with a 16 year old i met and she was my girlfriend and the the yeah. there's a little bit of that like misplaced hero complex kind of thing too like 
he you know in his head he's probably the hero of this narrative like protecting Janie from her possibly like abusive or manipulative father by killing him and hiding the body and never saying anything about it um you know in his head that the context I'm protecting her justified in the moment and like I I'm saying right there the the hero complex shit the idea that she needs to be saved in the first place that you're the one that needs to do that you're the only way that she's ever gonna get out of this kind of thing um he kind of like he wants to be a white knight almost like he thinks it will morally justify the questionable things he's done in his well, life and continues to do this do isn't a good thing and continue to do good things like he can balance the scales a little bit and maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's is like maybe I can't balance the scales um, and be better because um, I, I don't think I think he and knows that, that what he's done is wrong. I think he knows what he's doing is wrong. Um, I think that's very key in the. I think that's the beginning of eight. Is it's either the beginning of seven or eight? But Jenna Malone kind of interviewing him the questions that they ask and everything. And she eventually hits on that point of like, you know, an underage girl um, hits on you. Well, what do you do? He's like, I walk away. It's like, well, clearly you didn't like, you didn't do that. Is this like a new moral standing going forward that like you recognize that this was wrong, but like, it doesn't, it doesn't come up in that sequence. And then shortly thereafter, we're into episode eight. where kind of the shit hits the fan essentially. Uh, so, if there's anything else you want to hit that I'm that I'm glossing over, by all means, jump in. But in episode eight, we finally get what I had kind of been expecting, partly because I thought it would be a nice Nicholas Winning reference subversion. I also am f- very familiar with a lot of noir tropes. One key element, especially to a lot of Los Angeles-based noirs, that involve any kind of partner duo, whether it's like, I'm the main investigator, this is just my buddy who like gets me the information on the street, or it's literally two cops. There's a lot of, one guy's building up the mystery, blah, 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 he's figuring clues out, and then he gets too close to it, and he dies. And it's left to the right-hand man, the buddy, the guy who you didn't think was the focus of anything, to essentially come in at the end of the day, piece together everything the friend already had, avenge their buddy's death, and solve the case like kind of all at once, like carry carry it home essentially. There's a lot of stuff that ends like this. So, I'm I'm kind of expecting at some point, especially the more and more I'm starting to kind of grasp what the show is about or what it has to say, and it's building up what's very clearly a very feminist narrative, okay? So, when we get to episode 8, and, you know, Martin still has not said anything about what happened to Dad, other than, like, Janie, I'm going to protect you, blah, blah, blah. They're out on the beach, and who's watching them? The cartel. And, very matter-of-factly, Jesus tells uh, Alfonso, uh, yeah, kill him, okay? So, I'm I'm just waiting for it. And the the pacing of them walking and how quickly it all goes down, just an astounding sequence. Uh, 
Martin goes for his gun because he can feel somebody close to him. He gets a quick, like, machete slash across the chest. Not fatal, but enough to take him down. And uh, Janie gets shot through the eye. Very, very unceremoniously. Okay. Yeah, again, I feel like it's a cautionary tale, right? Like, she was she was also kind of neutral throughout the thing. Like, not not good, not bad. When you and I have different differing opinions on the the scene with her and Baldwin, where he basically talks her out of all of the you know Ivy League schools that she's been accepted to, and like no, come work with me at the come, and I was like, okay, it's another example of toxic masculinity. Like he uh, take remove the like creepy psychosexual like element to it. It seems like very much just a case of like I don't want her too far away from me if I can't have her nobody else can kind of thing I can live vicariously through her older boyfriend whatever but I'm gonna keep her near me like I don't have her mother anymore so yeah so yeah he sells her on it and I know you said initially you kind of took it as like a oh maybe their relationship's kind of okay kind of thing and I think well because yeah in yeah. a vacuum take away the sexual undertones that exist exactly, there you, yeah. you kind of think of it as this like that, that's kind of a nice father daughter moment kind of <laughs> like yeah their version um, of the closest thing these people have to it for sure right and I think that's more of what it is it's not what you would consider like a standard like oh what a great father daughter moment but you're kind of like in this world for these two characters that's about as nice as it's gonna get um and but yeah, you throw everything else into there with, with Billy Baldwin. Um, it, it it's got creeper creeper underlyings the entire time, and yeah. But so, ultimately, she she gets the bullet to the eye after she, all, everything's said and done. She sure does. Yeah. Um. So I I feel like we can kind of like just breeze straight towards the end of this because I I know you probably need to wrap things up, and so do I, because we've been we've been going for a bit. But anyways. This leads to essentially the extended uh, torturing of Martin, which lasts the remainder of this episode, only to be broken up by further, uh, again, creepy psychosexual manipulation between Yuritsa and Jesus. And you want to talk about shit you've just never seen before? You've never seen bullwhips used like this? Never. Nope. You've never. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure those videos exist. I have never seen them used like this ever. Uh, yeah. Just again, firmly establishing who is in control. Who yeah. Who is get, dominant? She's in this the powerful one. Yep. One hundred and ten percent. Okay. We get a little bit more of what's going on with the cartel and what's going on behind the scenes. Yuritsa, we kind of get the vibe, has been like slowly, methodically freeing the girls who are essentially enslaved into sex trafficking where she can, doing little good deeds from the inside. She's not trying to take the whole structure down immediately. That would probably be very foolish. because Keeping while, her secret. Yes. While she does seem to have a little something special about her and possibly supernatural, who knows, as, as far as we know at the same time, she gets shot point blank. She still dies like a normal person. So she's playing it extremely smart and close to the vest as she methodically is kind of taking this thing down from the inside. Parallel to this, uh, Vigo and Diana, they're kind of like, all right, I don't know what's going on with Martin. Uh, Vigo's mom is taking a turn for the worse. And he, uh, 
his kind of arc builds to a crescendo in episode nine where he's just like i just i need to kill i need to purge i need to like just i gotta like i need a release essentially and conveniently diana knows about this entire trailer park which is all full of pedophiles and we get what is probably the most audacious in your face uh just like this is a sequence to remember kind of moment of the show and uh, very god bless america very um, much so yeah and what was that Bob, uh, bobcat goldwith like uh, goldwith yeah he so refin he can't he can't be talking about any other sequence he just can't when asked directly like what's your favorite episode or is there a favorite scene he said there's a moment in episode nine that i think is pretty much like my definitive statement on everything and i'm like if it's not this sequence i don't know what is well, it's got to be because it's got every it's got character tropes. Every person's a little bit different and doing different things, and yes. like hyper one, hyper stylized. Yes, um, loved we've it. Got, we've got religious imagery. We've got sex, violence. We've got America. It's just it's all swirling together in this kind of just like kaleidoscope um, of just like an orgy of violence, essentially a a purge. So he goes out, takes care of, and just. Again, beautiful moment. And we didn't hit on it, sorry, before Martin's death, but the the two of them had gone out on a hit in the previous episode. Come on. Vigo hasn't been doing well for episodes at this point. Uh, he's coughing a lot, like worse than Cranston in, uh, <laughs> in Breaking Bad, honestly. And they just have this really tender moment where he just asks Martin, like, will you sit with me? And he stays with him. And I was, full, I was like, shit, this is the scene where Vigo dies, right? Well, no, Vigo, Vigo does not die. And the other moment that really did get to me, man, was the end of the end of this episode. Diane is waiting for uh, Vigo at a diner. She knows where it, and like the time's been taken by. She's getting a little concerned and everything. And he shows up at the end, and they exchange just a few words between the two of them. It's all like in the eyes. And I want to ask you about something else because you and I never really talked about it. She, the, the two of them are like in love, right? At least she is, or he is, or they've never said it to each other. No, I think they absolutely are, but I don't think it is a. It's not this romantic love that we we associate with the word. Yeah, it's no, more of I, a just. I have. Uh, I essentially had this narrative built up in my head where like he possibly saved her at some point, or avenged her like abuser down the road like maybe they met and formed a relationship or whatever he did and that was kind of the spark for this thing but again that's all that's all headcanon that's all yeah pure admiration for each other you feel a history but yes you feel a history between the two of them and again in an essentially wordless scene just the quality of the performances and the way it's shot yeah her waiting for him to show up at the end of this diner i'm getting emotional where i'm just like hawks better walk through that door man like i hope he he shows back up and he does and it's like an extreme relief and then you're kind of like where like where are we going from here and she's at ease because earlier opening of episode nine she's greeted by a vision this is when we get full-on supernatural she says the beings that you know give her the names tell her what to do tell her what's coming uh that there's you know a, a lot of bad shit to come, but on on the end of it or on the other side of it, there is there is a woman, and we are 
are led to believe that that woman is Yuritsa. And so Diana is pretty much just going to wait around for her to show up. Okay. So, episode 10. Unless you, is there anything else you want to cover before we get to the no, final half hour? No, not at all. I think uh, we are we are on pace to wrap this up and then okay. ask a so, few final questions. To yes, to 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 recap, episode ten, uh, the world begins with what I believe is a five to seven minute um, solo masturbation scene featuring Jenna Malone. Uh, very tasteful, very purposeful reinforcing pretty much all of the themes of this entire show in one sequence that could very easily be written off by somebody who doesn't want to engage with it as like seriously all all of these episodes are like an hour plus your final one is a half an hour and you chose to spend the first five to seven minutes of it with Jim Malone masturbating followed by her dancing around her home to Goldfrap for the entirety of the song not not a snippet the entirety of the song and then a monologue to no one possibly a brief very I think brief it's a psychedelic I think it's a with Vico uh, it's a and connection. his mother I think there's a I think she is tapped into the spiritual world and is talking to someone I just don't think they're in the room yeah they're not physically there in the space yes yeah I like that um that we get, like I said, brief scene with Vigo, a farewell to John Hawks, if you will. Uh, we get her monologue, which is a very hopeful one, and then we're into the last scene of the series, which is Yuritsa strolling into a bar uh, where some of the underlings that we've seen established in the last couple episodes are hanging out, and uh, she, you know, she she has a drink with the guy. It's great, you know he he's making the the house girls serve them drinks even though he's like inches away from the bottle and it's like this is fucking ridiculous like this is insane just she plays all of this perfectly and she requests that one of the girls play what is essentially this uh new folk song going around the area which is the high priestess of death and it's about her her deeds and how she goes where she can and frees people and does what's right etc etc and she she is justice. She is the revenge for like the evil that men do, et cetera, et cetera. So she has the girl perform it in front of these underlings, these thugs, and uh, they're kind of like, "Hey, what the hell is going on with that?" And no sooner than they process that, than that she reveals herself. She is the high priestess of death, and she promptly and very, very coolly uh, kills all of these guys. And then the show's over. That's it. <laughs> yes. How how'd you feel when those double doors to the bar close and we get Judas Priest just bumping and cut to black and the episode's over? How how'd you feel about the series as a whole in that moment and how did you feel about the note? Little underwhelmed, I think, at the very end. Like wanting more um wanting more detail. Um Potentially wanting that scene to be more stylized, but I think uh, we got enough of that at the end of nine. Um, but ultimately, oh, there's that. Yeah, the great scene with her at the hotel um, that I believe is oh, that was one phenomenal. Take. That's eight. 
or that was or the, no her but then the hotel you also get the ending of nine yes, which is the john hawks montage and so yes, i think yes, i wanted yes. something like that but ultimately um after everything said and done uh yeah there were moments where i found myself feeling tired um kind of saying like w- there were definitely mm-hmm. moments of let's push this forward a little bit faster than what we're doing um but ultimately the pacing was i didn't really have a problem with that i think there were just moments where i was just like all right i'm in it <laughs> and i'm like we're ready to go to bed at some point yeah. but i don't know if it's now <laughs> so yeah um i feel you um i think episode 10 in particular of course I see the runtime to start with, and I'm just so the whole time I'm watching the episode, I am conscious of just like this is not gonna have the normal flow of an episode because like normally the half hour mark is like where shit starts just getting crazy, not ending. So where's this gonna go? But I have rewatched that one since in isolation, and I I think it's essential for the kind of the final thesis statement of the show mainly because we don't really have any other active female mm-hmm. like Janie's dead um, we don't have any other principal female characters and so it would it would feel kind of odd to spend like a huge chunk of this with Jesus and some sort of storyline going on between him and Yuritsa unless it was going to be wrapped up with a little bow of her killing him or something by the end of this but I think what we're left with is the implication that yeah she's gonna continue to go on and systematically like work from the inside clearly she has good intentions she is the hero of this story she's the new way forward um the that she is the key to the the dawn of innocence that jen malone references that comes at the end of all of this chaos and turmoil all of the shitty things going on in the world right now uh apparently if we just give christina rodlow the keys of the kingdom all will be set right so uh we can start a, a kickstarter to make that happen <laughs> i don't i don't know social media campaign something like that i don't that. think there needs to be a second um, season so i think like no and you yeah you and i talked about it a little bit it's like i i do not think we will ever get one i don't think that's ever been in the cars i don't think it's even been discussed even if all of a sudden this was like amazon's biggest well, ultimately hit i think amazon like, i just I think i don't I, see it happening. i don't know how true this statement is um, but someone had kind of mentioned to me offhandedly that, um, that Amazon kind of went under new management halfway through all of this going down, um, like the, the making of it. And so mm-hmm. when they were initially like, yes, let's give ref in all this money and let's do all this stuff. New management was like, we can't change it. We can't edit it. We can't put him under new contracts, but we can bury it. Um, and so they just weren't very active in promoting it. Um, Yes, no, you you will not find it just like sitting on your prime originals list unless you direct search for it. They are definitely they're not trying to shove it down people's throat, which I definitely I mean, I think that's a good move. I don't think that's a way to sell this show to anybody that wasn't going to watch it already. I think you got to kind of let word of mouth do the work for you for a little bit. And I I do think that people down the road, it'll be one of those things, you know, some guy who has a decent following on social media just you know does his amateur reviews or has a website or something like that somebody's gonna like take a chance on it uh end up loving or hating it but we'll we'll get the you know get the ball rolling on it again and then maybe it will become a little bit more of a conversation piece it's also notable that it dropped i mean 
just a couple weeks removed from like Thrones ending, Chernobyl had just ended. Uh, you know, there's other stuff on the horizon. There was a few. There was like one or two big-ish movies out at the time. It just it kind of got lost in the shuffle if you weren't already you know in the bag and excited yeah. and ready for it. So I I think there is definitely the chance that more people will creep into it. That all being said. I don't know how the rights would work out, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if he will, if Amazon, given what you just said, will continue to produce future Refn projects, be they movies. Yeah, no or idea. Again, I think it was just because, of course, they had they had money in Neon Demon, but yeah, so they um, had to know what they were getting into a little I, bit. I I think yeah, exactly, exactly. I think sequel, no. I think standalone film. Starring Christina Rodlow as the High Priestess of Death, as Yuritsa, whether it is a continuation of where we left off the series, or it is a future adventure, or it is a prequel adventure, I really don't think it matters, but he he and Brubaker and all the cast and crew, Cliff Martinez in particular, I cannot say enough about this score, I think it's his best work, start to finish, not just for sheer volume, I think he has synthesized to be extremely punny uh the best parts of like what works in the drive score my favorite parts of what works in the only god forgive score which is everything and then there's just a little bit of that like quintessentially outdoor la sound uh that you get in neon demon and there it's just in a lot of ways it's the culmination of all of their collaborations together from a musical standpoint in the same way that you could look at the series as a whole as kind of a, you know, encompassing all of what Refn has been about, at least for the last decade or so. I don't think it's the Twin Peaks, the return scenario where I'm like, you can literally every single film in David Lynch's filmography is referenced in that show. Some more than others, some more overtly than others, but it is a, a, an entire statement on his his career to the point where he doesn't need to make anything else afterwards. Yeah, because it's all right there. So um, I don't think. So I guess what I'm saying is I think there's still an opportunity for another streaming series, whether it's on Amazon or it's on hashtag buy NWR or some other service that's like. Hey, we like what you did over there. Hey, nobody really gave a chance. Why don't you, you know, come do a project for us? We'll, we'll give you carte blanche. We'll let you do whatever you want to do. I think there's enough support for him still, even after this, which a lot of critics just had issues with how it was marketed, how it was sent out to them, how he was with the press around the release, the refusal to call it a TV show, the refusal to call it a movie. The, that became more of the conversation around it than anything else, honestly, was the release strategy and what is it. And I haven't seen a lot of conversation about the content because I feel like a lot of people just haven't watched that much of it. So uh, where it will ultimately stand in the grand scheme of, I'll put it under the television banner, in the grand scheme of television for the year for everybody else, who knows whether this is going to be like seen as an interesting but like really flawed experiment that somebody let him do or is maybe going to have the the masterpiece type you know cheerleaders 
I feel like the story is still being written about where this where this show is going to sit. So inevitably, I'm sure it will come up again. But for right now, for me personally, this is not the pound for you know. If we want to talk about prestige and importance and I just you know all of that stuff, I think inarguably Chernobyl is the best most well executed most important brilliantly acted all of that like thing i have seen this year but in my heart <laughs> and my soul the things that like turn me on as a viewer sounds really weird to say in reference to this show i i just i cannot every once in a while you get the feeling that somebody made something just for you and that happens so rarely this was one of those and it's it's my favorite thing of 2019 a year that has already been pretty over cobra kai uh (laughs) yeah no it takes the cake um well i love i love i love me some cobra kai dude but to old die young is i just it's it's a thing unto itself yeah absolutely there's nothing like it again we brought up peaks that's i can't even think of anything else to put in the neighborhood of it at least right now we'll, we'll see i hope there's more of this i want uh you and i actually te- this would be a perfect teaser next time <clears throat> that i that you and i get on mic together what i would like to do is you bring me three directors done who you think deserve the the netflix blank check or the amazon blank check the here's a hundred million dollars you make it as long as you want, about whatever you want, cast whoever you want, go nuts. Who not only deserves it, but would flourish in that medium that is traditionally a film director. Okay? I can give you that answer right now. I mean, I kind of want to say save it, but screw it. We're almost at two hours. Lay it on me. I'm go- So my first answer is Ari Aster. Okay. Um, I just, based off of Hereditary, there's something strange about the Joneses. Um, you know, or Johnson. I don't know what I. I don't know what the deal is with season two of it. Presumably, Mike Flanagan is busy with the uh, old uh, Doctor Sleep. I don't know when he's coming back. Give Give season two of Hill House to Ari Aster. <laughs> Yes, yes, I will. Let me see that I mean, show. And that's coming. Let me see that show. Um, so that's one. Um, I'm probably going to steal one from you right now if I had to guess. Okay, well, you, um, you, here, you, you say your one for right now. I'm going to say my okay. one that I came up with, and then we'll, we'll brainstorm. We can even write some fictional, like, this is what the show would be. This is who I would cast. <laughs> this is how many episodes. Like, we, we could have a lot of fun with that one. So, um,. One at a time. That could be a whole mini series. Each each episode is us talking about one director's ten episode series that they would create, and that would just be one forty five minute episode. Yeah, and we'll do six of them. We'll just call it blank check parentheses in theory, and I'm sure you know the blank check podcast will not get upset with us at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that'll be totally fine. Um, so Ari Aster would be my first one. Okay. Um, my my number one guy, I'll go ahead and spoil it here. I told it to you over the phone. I was so glad when I thought of it. And probably everybody else is like, well, dude, whatever. Uh, my pick is, hands down, Richard fucking Kelly. 
okay? Director of Donnie Darko, Southland Tales and the Box. I, if you're saying, what the hell Southland Tales in the Box? Uh, go watch those movies. <laughs> he did make other movies, and Southland Tales is a fucking modern masterpiece, and nobody talks about it. I, I want to do an entire podcast just... Like an entire series just devoted to that one movie. Um, I forgot that he wrote Domino. He did. He was a writer for hire for a bit, and he has been responsible. Darko Productions has been responsible for some great indies over the last couple years, but the dude has not made a feature since The Box. The Box came out when I was in college. 2009. Yes. (laughs) Please come back to us, Richard Kelly, and some, like, somebody. Just get the guy. Just give him like fifty. Give him fifty. Give him fifty mil. Don't even ask for a script. Just let him go do what he's gonna do. Give him ten hours. Just tell him that you'll release all of them. It doesn't matter. Let that guy tell a long form story with a giant sprawling cast. Let him essentially make Southland Tales the miniseries. Give me ten hours of Southland Tales. That's what I want. <laughs> All right, I think we got a new show, uh, a new series being born uh, for the movie arc as we speak. Yeah, I'll add or it for to the, the TV uh, arc, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'll add it to the list for sure. Um, <laughs> okay, so we will get out of here. I, I, I we, I, I guess, in our kind of final thoughts, I was so over the. I mean, I was so over the moon for it before it even started. Like I was pre-programmed to love this show, and it, any aspects that quote-unquote disappointed me or threw me off were only things that made me think about it even more and it is it's a show I have not been able to fully get out of my head um, since I started watching it I've been re-watching Refn's film output as well going back to the ones I've seen and the ones that I have not yet and it just yeah it, it's a great time to be a Nicholas Winning Refn fan, and I and I am one. This is my favorite thing of the year. It's a full-on 10 out of 10. If there's something else this year, movie or TV or streaming or music, like if there's anything that's going to eclipse this for me, please, like, please let me know. Because this, will, it, this I, will retroactively be, like, the best year for entertainment in my lifetime. But this... I have not felt this strongly about a a piece of art of this ilk since Twin Peaks The Return, which is one of my three favorite things ever, like across any medium. In in existence. I love it more than my parents. Things. Objects, if you will. (laughs) I'm just... Yes. I'm just separating it from books, movies, blah, blah, blah. Just Twin Peaks The Return as a standalone piece of art is just one, I love mom, one of my Mom, Dad, and Twin Peaks The Return. You know, and they, would, they wouldn't Gavin's even be mad at me. Fourth. My dad would be like, what the hell is Twin Peaks? But my mom would not even be mad at me. Gavin's at like a nine. Yeah. We'll, we'll see if they, yeah. We'll see if they uh, listen to this episode. And we'll see how pissed Gavin is that uh, that you got to talk about too old to die young in depth before he did but he and i will be doing that at some point soon and there you have it two uh big long discussions on a big long show uh and i'm very happy to announce that mr sunshine mayfield should be joining us for our upcoming episode three covering one of our shared favorites the neon demon and of course uh gavin will be on at some point 
we haven't nailed it down. Part of me wants to do the fucked up brother story of Only God Forgives, and part of me wants to bring him in for Drive, uh, because he's a bit of a car guy, as you may have heard. Uh, more on that later. Please stick around. We'll be back very, very soon with another episode of Rewinding Rentals.